0: So welcome back to Hashtag Squad, a podcast hosted by us. I'm Lum Ramiyasha.
1: And I am Andrew A.C. Yoshimura.
0: And we're devoted to talking about the wonderful, wacky world of Mumuka Hakahashi's Yurisayatsura. And today we are discussing the 11th volume of Wiz's Yurisayatsura Omniosis which officially take us to about the two-thirds mark of the series. Can you believe it? We are over 66% over two-thirds of the way into the series. And we only have about a third left to go. It's crazy. And we get some major storylines in this volume as we approach the end. We get a lot of really sweet Lovatara relationship stories and moments. We get a big spotlight arc for Yuki and a conflict with Ron. And we got an introduction of like a major new secondary character in Tone Sister and the perennial man-fearing full-body armor-clad hair is the Misunoko state Asuka. So we got a lot of really cool chapters to talk about, some really great ones, iconic ones in this volume. I
1: think this, um, this last third of the series is great because Takahashi has got a lot of, a lot of other things going on. We're well into the 80s by this stage.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: and, you know, she's got stuff like Maisonikoku, Is happening and she's always doing a bunch of short stories and other comics because like she just literally can't stop herself.
0: Yeah, towards the end of your Seatras run, Mermaid Cycle start up and she'll continue that for a good many years. She's Mm -hmm. doing a lot of one shots around this. Yeah, she's really keeping herself busy and we are really seeing like her in kind of a really like golden age era of her artwork, especially. I think like so many of each other's looked so great. Her character designs, her expression. This is a really great era for her art.
1: It really is. And one of the great things about it is that because uh, Urusei Yatsara has been going on for so long at this point, she can get as wacky as she wants. It's Mm -hmm. it's a long, ongoing series. It's not going to get cancelled until she ends it herself. So she can go out, she can do wacky storylines, she can do funny, she can do, you know, moving and, and, and relationship storylines. She can introduce new characters. And I think you really see this um uh, where she wants to take a bit of a break from uh Meson and just kind of do a bit more of a, a crazy sort of out there outlandish storyline because she's so focused on interhuman drama uh in Ikoku.
0: It's so eclectic. Hmm. And
1: the art, as you said before, is, is is really good. It's kind of reaching a pinnacle here of Cementing in the look of Urusei Yatsura, and of course, the anime is still going at this time as well. Mm. So it really is peak Urusei Yatsura.
0: Absolutely, like yeah. Oh, before we begin into our discussion of the chapters proper, there is one bit of Urusei Yatsura news that we should probably address on the show because it's pretty exciting. Is that we got the release date for Discotech's upcoming Blu-ray release of your seance so Remember My Love. That'll be coming out on January 25th, 2022. So Only You is already out by the time you're to this. We will already have listened to our podcast on <laughs> Only You. And definitely we are excited to get to Remember My Love in the coming months, too. And even more excited to check out Discodex Blu-ray, which has been doing really well. These past few weeks, the pre-orders for Remember My Love have been in the top five each week on Blu-ray sales and right stuff. And only used doing really well in pre-order sales too. In a recent week, at the time of this recording, it was like also in the top five highest-selling Blu-rays of the week. So, like, yeah, it's really cool to see your uh the movies do so well on home video for Disc attack, and it's a good sign. Hopefully, a promising sign for even more releases of the series in the future.
1: I think it will be, and that's the thing about Seijasra in the West is that the audience only grows, like. Urusei was already finished uh, by the time it officially came over to the West. Uh, the manga, everything had already come out, uh, and then they started releasing it. And it had a fan base, and it's known as one of the classics. But the reason why Urusei it just keeps building is because people just keep discovering it, and that's because it just never dies. Mm. Uh, and this is true even in Japan. Like, they are always releasing new products and some of them are incredibly bizarre products as well. Like they they released a, a hair removal gel or cream uh, with Lum on it recently, Veet. Like Veet hair removal with Lum on the cover. What has that got to do with Lum? I don't know, but <laughs> Lum's popular still in Japan, so they released that with her on it. Uh, and they, it just keeps going, you know. It's always got momentum, and people in the West keep looking at it. Maybe they might find out about Lum from Vaporwave, or maybe they just might see oh, a absolutely. random, like a random clip on YouTube or something that they go, "Oh, what's this? This looks really fun." And that's why the audience in the West is forever growing with Uruseiyatsura. The more anime fans you get, and especially retro anime fans, the more Uruseiyatsura fans uh, are going to yeah. start popping up, which I think is
0: great. I mean, we cannot under say how much vaporwave has probably attributed to your Ursiatsu getting attention among like younger fans in particular just like all the vaporwave tracks that have your Ursiatsu clips backing them that's like a podcast subject in itself that I'd love to do an investigation and discussion on, because I feel like that vapor music has been so tied to a kind of a modern resurgence in UI fandom. That alongside, of course, these new volume releases, of course, these new blueberry releases, I think we're seeing a lot of more people discover your Seahawks than even 10 years ago when, like, I got into it, you know, just <laughs> discovering the opening on YouTube. I think now even more younger fans are discovering, because now, like, it's, you know even more prominent in various aspects of like social media and also be more easily discoverable if you go into stores and also i think retro crush adopting lum is kind of one of their primary mascots like even just only having beautiful drever on the service is a really good help in like bringing attention to the series and lum as a character too
1: yeah and uh, I, th- I think lum is definitely someone a character who is known as retro now as well Mm -hmm. it's a very 80s and showa era sort of character that is still beloved today but you know does represent the um that particular era and uh, like the bubble economy in japan of the 80s yeah Uh, especially just because it was it ran for so long it had so many movies and dvds throughout that entire decade sorry dvds ovas and it is still popular. People, even if they don't know what Urosayatsara means, and this goes um double in Japan, they know who the character Lum is.
0: Yeah. Even if they've never seen the show. Super symbolic of the sense of nostalgia for the eighties of a time and place and an aesthetic most importantly, I think for younger yeah. fans, like Lum as a character, Urosyatsu Crips, they represent an aesthetic that is very appealing.
1: Hmm. And that's exactly why they use it for Vaporwave.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, yeah, you're right. We should do an episode on Vaporwave. We're going to have to get a specialist in. I think I know a couple. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> on, on Twitter. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I am not a specialist in this particular area. I mostly listen to jazz. Mm-hmm. So that tells you how up to date <laughs> I am. <laughs> in the modern music scene.
0: Hey, I love some good jazz too. I mean, there's some great tracks in the Uwe soundtrack, especially. But yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and okay. music and vaporwave subjects for another podcast. Let's get back to our discussion on the manga. And AC, take it away. Take the cake as it will with this first chapter. I will
1: take this. This <laughs> chapter certainly does take the cake. It is chapter one. Secret spot. Palatial cake of horrors. Uh, basically, um, to summarise this chapter, uh, everyone is invited to uh, a big shindig at uh, Mendo's house for Christmas. Uh, Ryoko gets wind of this, uh, and as Mendo reveals a giant skyscraper colossal-sized Christmas cake, it's revealed that Ryoko has planted landmines all throughout the cake. Uh, Nobody can escape, so people go in the cake, start eating their way through the cake to disarm all of the bombs. However, they continually go off. They think they've won because they've pretty much disarmed them all um but then of course uh they've eaten so much of the cake the entire structure just collapses in on everyone
0: and ryoko gets the last laugh after all at a big yep. laugh of, oh! <laughs> 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 hand up to her left and everything it's great
1: <laughs> it's a, it's another win for ryoko mm-hmm. of course so this is a this is a fun little Christmas chapter. Um you can tell that it it definitely is taking place around Christmas time. Mm. Uh the front cover um of Lum in some overalls with a with a nice christmas-esque winter sweater mm. and bow ties uh, is is quite a lovely visage. Yeah, it's a good look. Ryoko's uh scheming in this chapter is is also quite funny and As much as she loves to mess with people, the one thing that she hates is being left out of something. Mm -hmm. And that's why she messes with people, because she's a bored, rich, you know, teenager. So, of course, she's going to use all of her resources to mess with her brother who didn't invite her to her party or, you know, let her partake in the cake or celebrations.
0: I love her pettiness. If she can't participate, she's going to destroy it for everyone. (laughs) So, so (laughs) Ryoga. She always has to be the center of attention, or she always has to be included. If she's not, then blow it all up. (laughs) You know, one else can have their fun. (laughs) I love that Mendo's reason, though, wasn't to exclude Ryoko because, like, ill will towards her necessarily. It's because he knew that Ataru would inevitably crash the party. and He just didn't want Ataru to mess with Ryoko, like, flirt with her. So yeah. Mendo did it out of, like, a protective instinct for his sister that backfired on her becoming vengeful towards him. And literally, it blows up in his face. And I love this idea, the sentiment, that Mendo didn't even invite Ataru, it seems. He, he says that more well, she always comes to every party. So he doesn't go out of his way to invite Ataru to these things. But he knows hmm. that, inevitably... Ataru is just going to show up. Like, even if he doesn't invite him, Ataru is going to worm himself there. So that's just something he's going to shrug and accept, but he's going to take a preventative measure to keep uh, Ryoko away from him. <laughs> I yeah, him. I, I think, you know, if
1: you invite Lum, and even if um, Shitaro goes... Don 't invite a of course she 's going to invite a Like like mm-hmm. it 's just common sense like and, and the wackiness doesn 't get to the same heights without a there being the main character there are There are two things I want to point out uh, in this in Japan. Christmas cakes uh, culturally are culturally a really big part of Christmas, and when we say Christmas cake in the west, often it 's that horrible fruit cake yeah. Like, filled with uh, sultanas and nuts uh mm-hmm. that, you know, keeps for months afterwards and nobody actually likes to eat. It's often served with, you know, brandy. In Japan, Christmas cakes are incredibly ornate. There are so many – there's basically a cake shop at every train station or near every train station in Tokyo, and Christmas is their biggest month because Christmas cakes are incredibly ornate – They're usually like vanilla-scented sponge cake filled with cream and strawberries, and they are incredibly popular items to get during Christmas. Almost as popular as KFC, in fact, Mm. which is saying something. Uh, So, what they call Christmas cake and what we call Christmas cake is incredibly different, and frankly, their version is better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome.
1: Um, The other thing I wanted to point out quickly is my favorite gag in this is when Sakura finds a bomb uh, and she doesn't know how to disarm it. So she literally just shoves it down Cherry's throat.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: And it explodes in his mouth. And It's just like he like coughs out spit or something, or something goes out his ear too. But like, it's amazing that Cherry's whole head doesn't explode. Like, he must have some digestive system, and I guess it just dissolved most of the bomb, maybe, in his stomach. <laughs> and so he just coughs up some spit or something. <laughs> it's a
1: very Superman or Looney Tune style thing yeah. to do here. Um, you know, the, the fact that like Cherry is effectively immortal. Mm. at this stage both inside and out uh and just the fact that he can he, he'll eat anything including a live bomb yeah and nope. it's just the realization of sakura going i don't know how to disarm it and she just shoves it into into <laughs> her only own family member's mouth to get rid of it
0: yeah just leave it the chair he can handle this mess now there's some great cherry gags in this chapter i mean just yeah. on the opening page we see like Ataru and cherry are like eating through the cake that's presented to mendo's like Chagrin, but then also, like, when Cherry's introduction in the chapter itself is in Ryoko delivering, like, her kind of Trojan horse cake to the party, like, you know, they're about to cut the cake, but then it just collapses because Cherry is eating it out from inside. He's eating it through from the inside. And that includes the letter that Ryoko had stuck in the cake. And then there's a great running gag. It happens twice in chapter, where Cherry fakes people out, you know, on edge because of the bombs, by, like, creating a large pop sound. The first time he does it, it's with a party streamer he shoots up. And the second time he does it, it's by opening a wine bottle that, you know, the cork (laughs) pops out. And both times, in uh, revenge for, like, his... Them, freaking them out. Like, he gets hit over the head with a hammer, And the first time that it happens, it's Sakura hits him over the head. And the second time, it's Sakura, Atario, and Kosuke. That's a great running gag. There's another really great it joke is- of uh, people eating through the cake. Like, they ataru eats through the cake and like gets the sakura Ultra. have it eats through the cake on the other side and then there's like a party ball that pops out with a big congratulations so it's just a moment where everyone's like basking oh hey we tell through, and then they hit ataru over the head for like doing this like you know over the top melodramatic dramatic celebrating when the students still have like a you know stressful situation like hey we gotta fuse these bombs so i like that too it's a good gag. It's it's, it's it's a great tension cut in that one of ah. just like,
1: yay, yeah, we did it. Oh, hang on. That's not what we were trying to do.
0: And all the bomb fake outs are great, too. Like Ryoko having like the Santa statue, the animatronic, that's a bomb, but that explosive guitar hits it over the head. Like the whole fake out of like, is there a bomb in the gingerbread house? No, it's actually landmines and the great. Gag of like a landmine explodes in Mendo's face and it's hard and crispy, death recover, and they just land on more landmines and it got exploded anyway. Oh, that's <laughs> really good, too. And I guess the other comment I just have about the chapter that I found amusing is just the whole scale of it. Just the whole idea of Mendo's guards making this cake as if they were like. Constructing a house in the opening page of this chapter, like using yeah. like these spades to like slatter, like frosting on the walls and having these giant bowls are whipping full of cream. And also just the very concept of Mendo like creating this giant cake palace to hold his party inside, like the party room, <laughs> the party hall is inside the cake. And
2: it's just
0: <laughs> so crazy. In its like excess and pointlessness, I love how Ataru and Kosuke are not impressed at all. They're like, well, "This is such a meaningless gesture. You're supposed to eat the cake. What point? Just to create something so big and flashy. If you are not gonna eat it, it's just really, really. I enjoy that gag too.
1: It's good, and this, this, it's just nice to see Kosuke as well. Just kind <laughs> of wandering out through through this chapter and, and being in cahoots with with Ataru.
0: Yeah, I just will say that Kosuke, I think, does have some really prominent moments in this volume, like, in a lot of chapters. Yeah. Really pronounced the a character, more than just being, like, Ataru's friend who, like, tags along at his games or will comment on things in the class. But speaking of the yeah, class... It, oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I just, I agree. Like,
1: anything that has a little bit more Kosuke in there, like, he's not a particularly well-developed character, and he's this kind of, like, Ataru's, <laughs> you know, friend. But I still really appreciate him because, you know, he does have his own personality and his own sort of drives in what he does, which I really Mm. appreciate. He's not he's not just a clone of Ataru.
0: Absolutely. I think we see that more pronounced in these chapters, especially, especially in a chapter coming up. But mm. on the subject of the class 2-4, we have a big class chapter in Get in Shape and Henetsky. The second chapter this volume, and we had a Christmas chapter, now we have a New Year's chapter. And in this chapter, the principal basically forces the entire class to play a game of Henetsky, you know, to build up their strength for the upcoming year. But the principal being the principal, it's not just an ordinary game because they have to wield these giant iron paddles and hit these giant iron like balls, so you know most people can't lift the paddles much less hit the balls, except for our main characters who are strong enough, and some of them can just cheat, like Lord Ron, wear power wristbands to help them give the strength to hit the balls and lift the paddles. And basically the matches kind of divide into a men's match between Ataru and Mendo versus the Fujinamis, and then a women's match of Lum and Ron versus Sakura and Shinobu. And both matches go about as well as you expect. A lot of chaos and havoc and the women's match and especially like they just start tearing up the gym like literally mm. like they throw the paddle and ball around so much they break the walls and they tear up the floor so the principal calls the match early to give them the rewards and the whole reason like the entire class is going along with this is that the principal promised that they'd get a prize from the party ball. Something would drop from the party ball. And literally a ball drops. The principal literally drops the ball. Because the pun with it. Is that like. Otoshi Dama means like. New year's gift. But it also can mean. Otoshi can mean like. To drop. And Dama is a ball. So the pun was. The principal promise like. A new year's gift. But really what he was promising. Is that a ball would drop. And that's literally what happened. And, of course, no one's laughing. The principal laments, no one's laughing at his joke. But, yeah, no, they're yeah. all about to bounce at him. And the this translation tries to, it doesn't really quite explain it in the chapter. You have to read the end of chapter notes to get, like, the confusion like, was. Like, the punchline doesn't quite work at the end of this chapter. But the rest of the chapter of, like, the chaos of, like, them playing the game of Hanetsky is a lot of fun, I think. It is, uh, and
1: I'm not even sure, without having footnotes within the chapter itself, I'm not sure how you could actually make this work. Uh, yeah. It is, Japanese uh, love their puns, and in fact, like uruse Yatsura, the title of this manga is a pun in and of itself, uh, yeah. and uh, it's actually quite frustrating sometimes, especially if you're trying to learn Japanese, but a lot of their humour comes from these puns,
0: yeah for sure i think one thing that comes to mind for me like how like i would have tried to make it work is that the principal could promise that you will have a ball with whatever's in the the prize the party ball and so the end of the chapter pun could be like yeah i told you you'd have a ball you know but you know that at least would sort of you know, reflect like the contents of the party ball sort of would try and get across so, like what the original confusion was, but
1: yeah, that would work a bit better, i think mm-hmm. um so uh there there are two cultural things I'll have to explain here, number one, Otoshidama, a new year's gift is uh usually money, so they they all think they're gonna get money here, yeah, and uh money is kind of like a gift that you're if you're young, if you're like even in your teenager even if you're in your teens, your family will give you uh, money in like a little festive envelope. Like they'll fold up the money and they'll give it to you in a, um, in a little colourful envelope. And you'll get that, hopefully if you're lucky, from a lot of your relatives. So a lot of children in their teens kind of really appreciate this money because sometimes they have to live off it for a very long time. Like it's, you know, it's, their, it's their main source of income other than pocket money. Uh, often. Mm. So everyone thinks that they're going to get some money here, Otoshidama. The other thing is uh Hanet um Hanetski Hanetski which um, I'm not going to explain what the kanji means, but it is um it is a game that is not too dissimilar to ping pong. Mm. Or um tennis or badminton.
2: Yeah, badminton. Be-
1: in that you you have a ball and it is actually usually a heavy ball with mm. uh, bats that you and there's no net but you just kind of launch it at each other and you're kind of meant to catch it on the pad and then launch it back at the other person so it's it's not quite in that in ping pong or badminton where you kind of slap it back because the ball mm. is too heavy for that. You kind of meant to catch it and then kind of fling it back. It's not really a competition sport. It's just something for people to do to have fun. And it's it's very traditional. You usually wear it, you uh, usually wear like kimonos and the, and the pads, batons or whatever you want to call them, are usually very ornate as well mm. with uh, like uh, traditional Japanese characters on them.
0: Yeah. And we definitely see that here, that, the girls are dressed in some really beautiful uh, kimonos. Like Mom, especially, is like so detailed. Like Takashi yeah. went all out on the design in that. And yeah, like that is an interesting difference in the way the game is played compared to Big Mom and badminton. That's uh, super cool to see. It's also stated in the chapter that it is traditionally considered like a a girls' pastime game. Like the boys gripe about that, which. Yeah. It's not, like, I think probably in more recent times that it's more like everyone, anyone can play it now. But I think there is some like cultural thing, that like it used to just be like considered a girls' activity, a girls' sport.
1: Yeah, it is. And New Year's is just such a big deal in Japan. It's basically their Christmas. It's the time where you spend with your family, you dress up in, in clothes, uh, like in kimonos, like really ornate kimonos, and then you go to... Temples uh, for the New Year's.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have done that many times, although a lot of like you know, because I'm still an Aussie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Most of the time, I'm hungover <laughs> at these places because New Year's Eve is still like a, a huge uh, party time in in Australia, especially because it's summer over here. So you've gotten all the, the drudgery of having to spend Christmas with your family out of the way. New Year's time is party time. You spend it with your mates. You have fun and then you wake up incredibly hungover on New Year's Day. <laughs> That's the rules. I don't make them up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have a few notes on this chapter that I still want I'm sure, to sure. talk about. So one of the things I liked is that really, you know, kind of perks up on – Hearing that it is considered like a girl's game, which is like a character I like that, oh, a new feminine activity that I can do. I also like that Mendo kind of realizes that he's developed like super great arm muscle strength by, you know, repeatedly having broken through temple bells, which becomes even more a recurring gag uh, from here in art, especially in the later chapter. But I really like seeing that here. It's like, oh man, now I've become super strong because I've broken all these bells so many times. It's an interesting note that the Fujinami's both father and daughter have not received a New Year's gift in, uh, like, one time. Like, Mr. Fujinami, he hasn't received one in 30 years, and Ryu is like, well, I've never received one, but I guess you know it's not something <laughs> to brag about. Which is the sad no. thing, another sad point about Ryu's life, that her dad has never given her a New Year's gift. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. And it
1: is a bit sad.
0: I also, a uh, continuing note I liked is that the students are initially skeptical about what the prize will be for this match, and what will be in the Kusadama, because the last name was Taiyaki, and they called that out. It's like, oh yeah, nice callback to the Mr. Mowiki contest, uh, result mm. there. And yeah, and of course, there's this whole, like, confusion about, like, Ryu being forced to play in the men's match and not the women's match that, you know, she gets upset at Onsen Mark about. So, yeah, those are just some stray little notes common study I like I also like Katatsu Neko, like kind of shrinking away as all the students are preparing to like pounce on onsen and the principal in the <laughs> final chapter. Like Katatsu knows what's coming. He's just walking away from it. He's rubbing all hands clean of being involved in this, even though he was trying to literally type of rope that bulb that the revealed the the lead ball inside the party ball so that's very funny. But yeah.
1: It's a good gag that works in Japanese, and I was curious about how they would translate this one into English. Mm. I think your suggestion is better, but it's a difficult one to do nonetheless, especially when you don't know what otoshidama uh, and like New Year's gifts of money usually means.
0: Absolutely. I guess my only other comment is that I'm sad that this chapter was never animated because there's so much great action in the Hanetsuki match that you know I would love to see the animators go crazy with it as they often did in this era of the series with action. But alas, this is has this never been in. animated. No, this chapter really? was is one of the ones that have never been animated.
1: Uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I, yes. I I think my my brain just assumes something like this this big and. Um, you know, kind of uh, uh, like an ornate battle is certainly fitting for the animation, but uh, at the I mean, time, I suppose animation yeah. gets planned out months in advance, and this is probably at a time when
0: yeah, it's like you know, a New Year's it was event. coming out
1: faster. Yeah, but
0: what it's what's interesting to me is that the Christmas uh, cake chapter that we talked about uh, just before that was adapted, and but that was recontextualized as like a New Year's episode. Like instead in the anime, instead of being at Christmas time, it's yes, like a new year's right. party, so it's interesting mm. that they chose to adapt that as a new year's special and not this chapter
1: it is yeah and. I just love the gag that um the, the the girls are complaining, you know, uh you know, it's <laughs> yeah. not fair on us poor girls and they lift it up easily. Like all the women in in Ursa Yatsara are OP effectively. Yeah,
0: no, Sakura especially, and Shinobu Shinobu especially and Sakura. are like the strongest yeah. characters. It's a big contrast too to Love and Ron who have to use the power wrist fans in order to, mm. like... Because they don't have, like, the physical strength in the same way. So it's kind of interesting that we have, like, this match between these, you know, Earth women and these alien women, and the Earth women are actually much stronger physically. I think mm. it's, like, a cool detail.
1: So now we're on to Chapter 3, The Thorny Road of the Performing Arts. Uh, you've got uh, Lum in a, in a nice little uh, One Piece Magician's Assistant-esque
2: mm-hmm.
1: outfit here. And yeah. basically... They're going to have a talent contest, so they're all practicing for class 2-4. Lum comes in and says, don't worry, I've got a special judge, which of course is an alien, uh, one of her friends. All of the men who perform a trick um, suddenly get teleported off stage because the alien is not happy with them. Uh, All of the girls get a pass, suspiciously, no matter kind of what they do. The men come back completely frightened of the place that they've just been. Ataru uh, tries to cross dress to try and fool the judge uh, into thinking that uh, he's a girl. In the end, they it turns out the area they get teleported to is just a room full of those aliens who are consistently judging them and judging <laughs> them very poorly on all of their on all of their stunts and acts.
0: Mm-hmm. And they're actually getting motivated like, "Oh, I'm going to really show off my stuff. And Kosuke's, like, reflecting, I reckon once we travel back and forth here in the classroom a few times, like, we'll really master our ads and we'll put on a show. So it's kind of funny yeah. how they, like, <laughs> get into it at the end and, like, they want to impress these aliens, at least, like, most of these guys do, it seems. Like, the monkey trainer Kosuke and the the calisthenics guys.
1: The, the monkey trainer's the best because, like, the he still gets teleported off because... Mm-hmm. The monkey did the trick, rather than the trainer.
0: And that makes the other people who are going to do animal tricks, like having their pets do tricks, like they have to pretend that, you know, their pets are making them do the tricks, which actually works. Like the judge alien actually does (laughs) buy into that, which is funny. This is a neat
1: little chapter, um, very inconsequential. And of course it has uh, Lum- it has the continual running gag that any alien or monkey or animal is always biased towards girls. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how good a guy is in Ursa Yatsara, he's going to lose just because he's not a girl. Mm-hmm. And we even saw this with the, um, with the ostrich in the previous volume. Yeah. who was just, he hated everyone's drawings unless they were a girl. Uh, yeah. The other thing I wanted to point out is Lum sings in her own language here, which is always Windings, like the the, the mm. Windings kind of symbols font here. Uh, and I love this because any, any little flair of, like, of Oniboshi culture, I just really appreciate. And it turns out Lum is either, number one, a bad singer, which is probably true, or number two, The singing or battle cries of her country are also equally as terrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the judge alien is like soft and the girls, So it could be, you know, he's just being charitable and like plotting her. And she really is like singing off really badly. But it could also be that she's actually singing really well in her own language. And it just sounds (laughs) like interminable and super loud and not just to all the earthlings. So, is it, I, I like to think it's a
1: bit of column A and a bit of column B there, actually. Mm-hmm. Especially when you see uh, like uh, Lum's expression in this; it's yeah. just kind of, it's just kind of screaming. Yeah, uh, with her eyes closed.
2: It's cute. Yeah,
0: yeah. There are some really good gags in this. This is another one where Coast kind of really stands out because he tries to do this magic trick with the cards, but both times he's given the chance to do this, he fumbles and slips the cards <laughs> so <soul> fall out. <laughs> you know, he immediately gets teleported. So I like that. Mendo tries that to fun. use his, you know, break open the bell trick. <laughs> like to impress the judge and it it almost works like the judge is impressed but then all the other boys yeah. jeer at him and make the judge realize or make that oh it's not really that special or like either the judge realizes oh that's not really a special trick or like he feels embarrassed for being impressed at something that one else is and he makes Mendo teleport <laughs> either way I think it's very funny I feel the monkey is like I feel like that's a clear homage or reuse of Jotaro and his character design, if from the, uh, yeah, the Sashi yeah, chapters, definitely. like mm. very similar coat, stripe coat he's wearing, very similar design. So I like that little uh, cameo for him. And I like Rionosuke's trick of like she's going to you know chop, you know karate karate kind of performance trick of like chopping, you know. Blocks with your bare hand. But she is so strong that she doesn't just chop through like the stack of blocks, but she chops through the entire wooden performance <laughs> stage. It like splits in half under her. And because a piece of brick like hits the judge, she almost gets celebrated away until Ataru like lifts her shirt up to, re- to reveal to the judge that she is a girl. <laughs> I
1: was just going to say, it's moments like that where Ataru is genuinely, and you know, like, it's 50% he's genuinely trying to save Ryonosuke and also genuinely trying to cop a feel Mm -hmm. or, like, you know, show her tits. And because, like, the thing on his face is he rushes in to save her and he does this numerous times um, with Ryunosuke where he goes, no, 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 you can't do this because this person is a girl. Mm -hmm. He does it in, like, the most obscene way possible because it's a taru, um, but he does genuinely try and help her.
0: Yeah, this isn't the worst that Ataru has done in no. an effort to, like, help her. In this case, I think that he actually did, like, just help her and didn't, like, take advantage of the situation. Because he just pulls her shirt back to reveal her sarashi yeah. underneath and that she has breasts. Mm. But she he doesn't, like, grope her breasts or anything. So in this no, case, he no, can no. be a little more charitable towards him. A little. <laughs> yeah, a little, you know, it is still a taru, so you still should suspect uh utter intentions. But, you know, he's not without his selfless side either, as we no, see no. even in a later chapter in this uh, volume. But also, I like Shinobu, like, really at this point fully embracing her, you know, shtick of, you know, throwing deaths, like, by doing, having her trick being juggling deaths. Like, I, I like that for her. And yeah, so uh, there are a lot of really good like character based comedy in this that I really appreciated. And I guess my only other, like note that I found interesting about the chapter is that Ataru like begins the chapter like announcing that they're going to do a talent show with kind of Mendo kind of like as a, as a co like announcer. And this kind of implies and a later chapter also seems to indicate this, that despite Ataru proclaiming, he's given up the position of like being the like class representative. He's still somehow hmm. in that role, like de facto by default, because I guess no one else has taken it up for him. Not even Mendo. Yeah.
1: Nobody wanted Mendo to do it. Mm. So, uh, and so Ataru just seems to be the class leader and Mendo is kind of like the secretary. Yeah. For lack of a better word. Like it's not even vice president. He's just the one who like kind of follows the orders and has to instigate everything, which is kind of fitting for Mendo. Uh, he's Mm -hmm. always, he's always second banana to Ataru and that is literally literally his role. That is his role in the series. No matter how rich or how handsome he is, he's still second banana. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next, we've got uh, chapter four: the love of glove and co- sorry, the glove of, the love, glove and of love and
0: conflict.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the love of glove that works mm. too, but uh, the glove of love and, co- and conflict.
0: Yeah, a <laughs> uh, good title page here with like you know, it's very. I think Takahashi is drawing upon her love for Shin Joe with this drawing of Atari here in boxing gloves. You know, taking a beating mm. but getting back up with Lum as his coach. But yeah, this chapter, Otaru stumbles upon a boxing glove that is, you know, tied around the tail of Torajima during, like, a fight between him and Ten. And Torajima's just landing on Otaru's face. And he takes the glove and tries to attack Ten with it. But the glove does not allow him to hit people. He can only, like, be affectionate and pat people. So this happens with Ten. It happens with Lum. It happens with all the girls in class. And what really strikes people off that something is wrong is when he ends up hugging and patting Mendo. And that's when Sakura comes in and reveals that, you know, this glove is a love-clinching glove. It is a karmic glove that causes the wearer to embrace their opponent. And it is paired with another glove that... The boxing manager who brought the gloves to Sakura to exercise in the first place kind of puts on Ataru. And this glove is the glove of angry combat, which, you know, forces someone to hit whoever draws near them. So the gloves are polar opposites, and together they are like a powerful combo of like drawing someone in close to give them a big sucker punch, like right up close. And so, Ataru does this to Onsen a few times and tries to do it to Mendo, but Lum gets in the way, but before Ataru can unwittingly hit Lum, he puts his own face in the way to protect her from the blow. And then, afterward, Sakura has kind of created, like, this spiritual boxing ring, like, full of, like, warding papers to prevent Ataru from leaving. And knowing that Ataru will not be able to let himself hit Lum, Lum is basically sicked on Ataru to keep getting close to him. So Ataru will keep getting in the way of the glove trying to attack Lum. And basically this happens so many times until the point that Ataru is knocked out and the gloves are satisfied of their regrets inherited from their original owner who is like a boxer who is so strong that no one would ever approach him. And so the gloves and the spirit of that boxer have been left in peace, but the final gag of the chapter is that Ataru takes advantage of Sakura coming to reclaim the gloves to grab her, and then she puts the girl off on herself right before, you know, she's about to pummel him. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a really great chapter, not in ter- just in terms of, like, some of the cool action here, but also in terms of the character moment that we see with Atari here. That Atari will go out of his way to put himself in harm's way to protect Lum from harm. It shows how much she really cares about her safety, that, like, he is willing to punish himself, like, over and over again in order to make sure that she doesn't get hurt.
1: I think this speaks to Ataru's character in that Ataru, for all of his flaws, and he is mostly just a person of flaws, <laughs> 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 he does have a, a strict code of ethics or a code of conduct, and he will not harm a girl. Mm. And he will always put himself in danger before a girl is harmed. And we've seen this many times, especially when he was – um he had the the toothache and he wouldn't he was not going to bite a girl to get rid of the the toothache because he actually states i'm not i haven't i'll do a lot of things but i'm not going to hurt a girl and that really comes through in this chapter and lum takes advantage of it not in a in a sadistic way just she's just so starved of affection from ataru and she's just so thrilled that he is willing to harm himself more than her that she sees this just as as much affection as that she can possibly pull from ataru
0: no she tears up when you know ataru protects her from a punch like it really means a lot to her that you know ataru cares so much about her safety that he would protect her and so that's why she keeps coming back in to embrace him even unwittingly like i don't think she is fully thinking about oh the more she's doing that the more ataru is going to have to force himself to hit himself so as to not hurt her but yeah, no, it's a it's a good character moment for Ataru. Of course, like, I'm sure, if we had seen like him get in the way of other girls in this chapter, like he would also put himself in harm's way. But it still says a lot that he's willing to do this again and again and again for Lum. Like it yeah. shows how much he really does care about her. So I think yeah. this is like a big defining kind of chapter in terms of like Ataru, how strong Ataru does care about Lum actually. And also that of his selfless side as well.
1: Yeah, he, he does have a selfless side. Uh, and like his, his code of ethics, his particular code of ethics and conduct really do shine through in a lot of these later chapters. And you find out the, the kind of person that Ataru is and thinks of himself as well. Like he knows he's a sleaze and a pervert. Like he's aware of that. He doesn't think anything different, but he does still think of himself as a good person because he has his own set of his own set of morals i suppose yeah. the two cultural things i should probably point out in this chapter is uh number one uh Ashita no jo, uh is uh and to this day incredibly popular and influential manga in japan they have statues of no Joe. in fact where mm. um where the Lum statue is in on the uh, Seibu Ikebukuro line uh, in the anime gate. Um, they have one of Astro Boy and, or Atom Boy, and one of Ashita Joe as well as mm-hmm. um, the Galaxy 999 characters. And the other thing I wanted to point out, that boxing in Japan was so much of a big deal back in the 70s and 80s it was seen and it's not as popular in japan anymore but back then it was it was seen as one of the the height of sport the height of of two physically trained and toned men just pummeling the shit out of each other <laughs> it was just seen as a masterful a masterclass of the sport of boxing and it was it was very very popular they even when i was in japan in the early 2000s they still had bars and clubs named after popular boxers of the time wow uh and so it it's something that isn't as prevalent as it was and, but that being said there are still a lot of showa era people who still really love boxing but it's just nowhere near as popular as it is now. But this is definitely of the times. Like, boxing was still such a big thing uh, during the 80s that even Takahashi was obviously a bit of a fan.
0: Oh, absolutely. In fact, there was an interview she did fairly recently. By that, I think it was still like 10-ish years ago, where she had actually discussed her feelings for Shunido, like how much it influenced her. Hmm. And... I've not been able to like read the fully translated interview, but it is kind of part of the archive that the folks over at the, you know, room World site have on file. So that's one I'd like love to read in full, but like, it's totally evident in several chapters of not just your say, but also the fact that, you know, she did her own box manga with Pan gospel that a Joe was a huge influence on her.
1: Yeah. And it, it's hard to state because I don't know if *Ashita uh, Joe* has ever. Sorry, I should say it's uh, English title *Tomorrow's Joe*. Has ever been fully translated into officially English? At least in the English? manga. I'm unsure.
0: Uh, do you mean so officially in English or scanned? Yeah, calendar?
1: So officially in English.
0: So officially in English. What has been released is, um, we got all of Ashita No Joke 2 on Crunchyroll a few years ago, the second anime series. And it was renamed to Champion Just 2, but otherwise, you know, it was, you know, the same, nothing else was changed. It was a, you know, fateful translation of it. And I think that was provided by TMS themselves. It has not, it has since been taken off of Crunchyroll, and it's not been made available elsewhere, unfortunately. We also do have the Tomorrow's Joe compilation film, basically a compilation film of the entire first series, or at least a pre-time skip part of the first series which
1: frankly would be pretty easy to do because a lot of us know Joe and a lot it's shown in anime especially sports anime at the time is basically just a whole bunch of still frames and like suspense of leading up to one punch it's still
0: a lot of story <laughs> content though it's like they take like over 50 episodes uh, and then compile it into one film but it is actually a fairly well done streamlined recut of the series and it is still available to purchase so from Discotech on blu-ray i think it's streaming on retro crush yeah so we have oh it was recently announced that the compilation film for shinojo Jocho will be released by retro crush sometime uh no Discotech sometime next year so that awesome. is coming
1: that's good news so
0: yeah, yeah. We don't have, we have never gotten officially the original manga, but we are getting like more of the anime. And hopefully, one day we'll get like the first TV series, and then the second TV series will be made available on streaming again and could also get a physical release. I would like to see that. I'm a big Joe fan. Uh, I really love the series. So, you know, I would love for it to be more like legally available.
1: Yeah. Given its influence in Japan, it, it really does deserve a Western release. I only actually know about Ashita no Joe from my time in Japan. Like, I've never really seen it outside of that context. Uh, and everyone is – Joe is one of those characters that everyone everyone in Japan knows, even if they've never read the manga or seen any of the anime or anything like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, he's, and
1: he's pretty prevalent over there as well.
0: He's a very iconic character. Like, as much as I think you could say Mlam is, like, so representative and emblematic of, like, 80s – Anime and I think like Joe is really like emblematic of 70s anime as a, like an icon of his era. And his series he really had a He's huge cultural 70s. impact and was a huge reflection of the culture of the time of like Japan's like kind of economic and class struggles of its time. And I mean, the series had such an impact that the death of a major character in it inspired like a real life funeral for that character. <laughs> like, just an authentic, like, not really a marketing thing. It was, like, an authentic, like, people cared that much that they held a real-life funeral for that
1: character. It's, uh, yeah, spoilers, Joe dies at the end.
0: Well, it wasn't even for that ki- It wasn't even for Joe. <laughs> it wasn't it, for that character, no. It wasn't. The, the funeral wasn't for Joe. And, and, and it is also no, worth pointing Joe, it, that I, it, I is, have... uh, it is left ambiguous at the end of the series, whether Joe died in that last match or... He is simply, like, kind of collapsed over, like, kind of content. So it's kind of pointedly ambiguous.
1: I'm pretty sure the writer came out and said Nike died. Uh, and I uh. remember reading that in an article one day. But it is it. Uh, the reason I say that is because Joe sitting down, smiling, resting on that chair, and is one of the most famous manga images in Japan.
0: It is, yeah. You'll see it referenced in everything
1: all the time on television. Um you'll see a lot of characters in manga like emulating that, like that half smile, half exhausted, possibly dead, collapsed on a chair in the in in the corner, sort of thing. Uh it is I think it was voted at one stage like the most famous panel, like manga or yeah. comma uh panel in Japan.
0: You have At seen that image if you watch like a ton of different anime. Like yeah. it's a it's the most common homage to Joe.
1: And a lot of shonen writers still reference Ashton O no Joe today. Yeah. Like it's it's still very very, uh, very prevalent uh, within a lot of other people's works, like Dragon Ball and One Piece and stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know this, my, I don't remember if we talked about it before when we discussed this chapter, but the terror of Meow. Mm-hmm in the anime version episode 43 uh, of your seance, that's a big like joe homage as well i don't remember if they yeah, homage yeah. like the iconic ending scene but like so much of the fight between Ataru and torojima is like a direct homage to ashina and a joe fights in Dasaki's kind of like freeze frame postcard memory style that he employed in the series and so many like, iconic like moments of like how characters react when they get hit and the blows of the cross counter and stuff like that. So that entire episode is a big Joe homage as well.
1: It is. And it, I just love the fact that it's still being referenced to this day, and it, it baffles a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's fine. Like That's one of the great things, especially about stuff like Urusei is that it's unapologetically Japanese. It was never meant for the Western audience. We are just lucky that it came over here, and we are learning a lot about Japanese culture as we read this as well. And that is actually how I learned a lot about Japanese culture before I went over to Japan. And despite the fact I lived over there for seven years, I still don't get a lot of the stuff that goes on. There are a whole bunch of references in Urusei Atsara, another manga that I just don't understand. And, you know, I, I, it's the kind of thing where if you don't understand, it's an opportunity to learn something. And sometimes you'll read something and don't get it, and then you'll learn what it means, like, you know, a decade on. You'll go, oh, I get that now. That's why that was like that. It's mm-hmm. one of those lightbulb moments, which is uh, it's, it's one of the fun things about reading Urusei Atsura, I think. Absolutely. Okay, now we're on to Chapter 5, Blue White Flames of Anger. Uh, yeah. This is a... Uh,
0: First part of a three-parter focused on yep. Lum's friend gang, especially Ron and Ayuki. This is a big Ayuki like spotlight arc. And it's a storyline like in these next three chapters that doesn't have Tarun in it at all, which is a rarity yeah. for the series.
1: It is. Uh, and it it does kind of cement a little bit further. And we've seen this in the, in the previous volume about how these four friends all interact with each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, you know, they're the kind of personality bases so basically, yeah. we've got uh, Run uh, excited to see Ray for a date. She's got a picnic basket. Uh, she is suddenly attacked um, by a whole bunch of uh, Neptunium uh, Lemmings. Mm. Uh, they eat all of her, um, all of her taiyaki. Taiaki. Taiyaki. Taiyaki. Sorry. Uh, she goes to uh, Oyuki to complain, and you know to try and get some uh, <laughs> some compensation. Oyuki is, of course, uh, apologetic, but uh, also starts getting a bit angry, which freaks run the fuck out. Uh, So she goes back. However, she notices that she has a stowaway in the, uh, the leader of the Neptunian Lemmings is with her, starts eating all of her food. She tries to capture it and manages to get a hold of it. However, she's still afraid of Oyuki. Uh, And Benten, who was around at the time, is kind of like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I've never really seen this side of Oyuki. So she ends up sending Oyuki a ransom note saying, I've got your stinking Netumian lemming here. If you want it back safe and sound, do as I say. And says it's from Ran rather than Benten.
2: And that's how that first
1: chapter ends. And it's basically... Like ben Ten is just being a little bitch here, and I love it. I'm all yeah. here for Benton.
0: <laughs> no, like Benton is a trouble instigator. We've seen this in flashbacks as well as that. Benton is always one looking to start up a good conflict just for the cakes of it. So yeah, yeah. here she is willing to put Ron in the crossfire here just to observe, like a Yuki get really angry, you know, just to mm. use herself. So that's really fun.
1: You kind of you kind of get a little bit more of the fact that like Ben 10 and Run really don't like each other. Like Lum and Run like are, were friends, pretend to be friends, you know, and Run yeah. has I kind mean, of a bipolar disorder. Yeah. But like like Ben 10 just like straight out seems to really dislike Run.
0: Especially uh, from And this I like point that on. dynamic. Yeah. For this point now I think that creates a big shift in, like, how we understand the relationship between Ron and Benton in particular, that they are characters who are, like, really antagonistic towards each other, mm. even among the rest of one's friend group. Because, like, yeah, we had seen previously that it's implied that Lum has known Ron the longest out of anyone in her friend group. Because, like... She- yeah met and Yuki when they were middle school, but she's known Ron since she was little kids, and so they have a very tumultuous history, like Lum you know, is generally kind to Ron, but like Ron has a lot of grudges for the many times And as a child where Lum has mistreated her and whatnot and so they kind of have a back and forth, but ultimately we do see in a lot of chapters that, you know they are pretty close friends, but yeah, Ben Ten and Ron it seems like they're kind of just friends by being and part of this same circle that's kind of around them, but they're not, they don't really like each other to get into other's nerves. And we see, like, outright in chapter, uh, or outright in the story arc, that they, they really start fighting for Keats. Ron, in particular, really starts fighting to take out Benton. Like, when Oyuki as we'll see, like, she just wants to, like, knock out her out and get away. But with Benton, she, like, thinks, oh, I can beat her. And she, like, tries to, like, actually destroy him. Earth, there is some that.
1: murderous intent.
0: Oh, absolutely! Which, that. which I'm
1: all there for. And look, as I as I've pointed out before, like this friendship dynamic is very familiar to me. Like we've we've all <laughs> known someone, we've all known someone like Bendon who just likes to start shit just because it's funny. Mm. And I'm not gonna lie, I have been in that role once or twice. I've, I think I've, I'm more akin to the Lum role of of, like, I don't necessarily start shit, but boy, do I take part of it when it is started. Yeah. As soon as I find out there's something fun to be had, yeah, that's definitely kind of my role there of, uh, yeah, my my friendship group was, um, was, was a little antagonistic back in my high school days, I think it's fair to say.
0: Absolutely. And, no, I guess my other note is that, yeah, this, that's what's also interesting about this arc, is because how it reframes, you know, Oyuki in the group, Because Ayuki is, like, always been portrayed as more of a stoic character than the others. But here, like, we get the sense that, you know, at least as far as Ron's concerned, like, you know, Ron is really in fears Ayuki because she knows what she is capable of in terms of, like, you know, when she actually gets a set, like, (laughs) she doesn't want to incur a wrath and stuff like that. So we kind (laughs) of see that Ron, like, keeps herself in check when Ayuki really seems like she's getting stern, like, as this, at the end of the arc will show. But yeah, like, this also sets up a new dynamic for a few chapters, uh, going forward between Ron and Ayuki, where we'll have, like, stories that kind of show Ron in conflict with Ayuki, and then Ron trying to find a way to worm her way out of that conflict. And I mean, we also see mm. from this point on that Oyuki is portrayed kind of as someone who, like, has a lot of power over the others, and especially Ron. And so that comes into play. That she, she like, the more manipulative, spiteful, petty side of Oyuki, like the more passive aggressive side of her, also starts coming yeah. out from this storyline forward, and especially in her dealings with Ron. So,
1: yeah. And that that passive aggressiveness like you've you've kind of seen her take a very neutral position before now, mm-hmm. uh, in that like she'll she's happy to sit there and watch and she'll lie and say, "I told you not to do that, even though she did no such thing and she she kind of revels in it her in her own way, but she remains neutral so she doesn't get into trouble, but here she becomes much more passive aggressive, and mm-hmm. from these stories onward like you can, you you see that she's just stone fucking cold to her friends yeah. a lot of the time and absolutely yeah i once again there are certain members of my friendship group when i was in high school where i could definitely say that person was the stone cold fucking bitch of the group (laughs) (laughs) the passive aggressive one Mm -hmm. i shouldn't name who he is uh hopefully he'll never listen to this (laughs) okay so next we've got the blue white flames of anger part two
0: yeah, I mean, speaking of that Ron-Benten conflict, the courage of this is literally Ron holding a blade to Benten's throat while they're glaring <laughs> at each other, which really uh kind of sets up what you're in for as this chapter continues. But yeah, Ron is basically trying to get the fuck out of her spaceship before Yuki arrives, as she doesn't want to deal with an angry Yuki. But of course, Ayuki arrives before she can leave. So her next plan is, okay, if I can't <laughs> escape before she gets here, I'll at least knock her out and then make my getaway. So she tries to knock her out when she opens the door, but no, she brought her her manservant B-Boy, the giant yeti creature. So Ron <laughs> accidentally knocked her out instead. And so... Like Ron has to come up with a backup plan, like trying to act friendly to Yuki by serving her mochi tea, and then trying to drug her with sleeping powder with the mochi. But unfortunately, the lemming eats it instead and gets knocked out. So then Ron gets defensive because she thinks she's being accused of, you know, drugging the lemming, and then tries to kind of push off all blame of like the lemming kind of hitchhiking in her basket and stuff like that. And so she gets very angry at Yuki and then just kind of ends up running away while still like, you know, scolding her. And Vlam tries to explain the situation of like Ron being afraid of her for being angry. And then like Ron has sent one of her messenger dolls to make the peace, But of course it blows up in all their faces. It was uh You know, another Trojan horse kind of exploding doll of hers. And Benten gets exploded in the crossfire. Like, Lum and Ayuki got out of the way, but Benten got blown up, and so she gets mad and goes out to pay Ron back. And Lum and Ayuki, of course, accompany her. Ayuki is, of course, nonplussed because she wasn't hurt. As long as she's not hurt, everything's fine. (laughs) And so. You know, they chase after Ron, and she's preparing to, you know, blow them up with a big flamethrower or bazooka. And when she sees them coming in her scope, like, she shoots at them using real ammo. And then Ben 10 tries to return in time with a Yuki, but with, a, like, a grenade. But a Yuki kind of, like, holds it back on her. And, you know, like, it lets it run a little too long before, like, throwing it away. And then they, like, explodes on top of Ron. And of course, like Ayuki tries to call out to Ron to trust her, but Ron's not <laughs> going to believe her after being blown up by a grenade. So she just shoots more bazookas at her, and then Love tries to make the peace by telling her that Ayuki is not mad at her, but Benton is. And that actually perks Ron up, because Ron's like, oh, I can be Benten. <laughs> it's not Ayuki, <laughs> I can be Benten. So she waves a white flag to make the peace supposedly, but when Benten comes down to greet her, she reveals that there was a blade in the flag, and she holds Benten up a knife. And <laughs> holds the knife up at Benten's neck. You know, seemingly having caught her in your trap. And then like Ayuki's like, ah? Huh? Well, let's just, let's see how this plays out. Like, they're not too yeah. absurd. <laughs> What'll happen in this fight between their friends? I'm they to not good.
1: This, um, this middle chapter is, is really fascinating. There's a lot of callbacks. Oh yeah. To Ran's sort of, uh, mischievous tricks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's more than a one trick pony, but she doesn't seem to be any more than like a three trick pony. You know, <laughs> yeah. she's, she's got her hidden weapons. She's got her drugs, and she's got uh, basically running away, and that yeah. is, and her like your high explosives. Yeah, and she kind of like she kind of pulls everything out of her bag here that you've seen in previous chapters.
0: Oh yeah, bazookas, the exploding messenger dolls. Yeah, all her hmm. signature highlights. She's really throwing everything at Ayuki. <laughs> it's not working at all.
1: And I, I just love the fact that okay, maybe it's just time to run away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh and there is something this is very Looney Tunes, and I think um the, the very last panel here, where the the translators have said have gone with Ron saying, You're no match for me, you vomit uh, which is a very um looney tunes um. Sam? Sam?
0: I guess that's one thing I wanna comment on whether uh, how Ron is hmm. winning uh in these chapters, is that I like It's, you know, we know that like when Ron like kind of drops her like polite girl, girl facade, she speaks very informally, kind of very more like country like certain colloquialisms like that. I kind of feel like using words like varmint might be a little,
2: it's a little on the nose.
0: Yeah. It just, (laughs) it calls back to a dialect and a type of like person, like a, Like, really, like, Western country kind of person, like a Yosemite Sam type, that I kind of don't see Ron as being. Like, even with her background, like, even thinking about, like, oh, the idea is that when she, like, kind of gets mad, she kind of drops, like, her polite affect and speaks more, like, lowly like she's a person from the country. Like, I feel like even then, that's a little much, because I wouldn't see, like, you know... Mm -hmm someone her age would be using kind of a lot of the words that she kind of drops in this, yeah. uh, in these chapters. I understand
1: why the translators went to go with this because it, it's so hard to translate the way that Ran talks as like a little polite lolly girl
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, for most of the time when she's interacting. And then when she drops that facade, she's definitely like, She's got more of a a country and very masculine sort of accent. Yeah. And it's it's actually quite rough, um, which speaks to the kind of upbringing that she's had uh, in the use that, you know, the, the, the fact that she'll use trickery and stuff like that. And, and the fact that it is very Looney Tunes, like all of these high explosives and dynamite and all that sort of stuff, I kind of get why they went with this. But, like, Varmint is a word that I've only ever heard in Looney Tunes. Like, as an Australian, there is no other context for that. Like, it's not a word that we use, and I've only yeah. ever heard it in the context of, like, 1940s and 50s, like, Bugs Bunny animated features.
0: Yeah, I mean, she also uses, like, tarnation earlier. As yeah, well. and, and that that's is another also you'
1: Yosemite it's Sam. Like, yeah. Yeah,
0: no. <laughs> I, like, yeah. I
1: I get that it's difficult to to use different language to portray how she really thinks like when she's being angry or a normal person and how she drops the facade. I think it gets the point across but it also doesn't seem quite right either.
0: Yeah, it just feels a little old-fashioned like these are words that you really only see like characters that are written as like kind of old cowboy western yeah. country types like say which I mean, again, I, the idea is, like, Ron is supposed to be speaking, like, informally, like, she is, like, kind of from the country, but, like, that's kind of, like, just too old-fashioned, I think, even for her, like, based on, yeah. like, the time period.
1: Yeah. I'd, I'd really have to get the original translation to read out what they say here. And, like, my wife is actually from the country, like, she's from a particularly rural part of Japan. Mm. but uh, there ain't no way she talks like this either <laughs> and none of the none of the men like none of the men in that area talk like this either so it's i think in the japanese translation it's a lot more subtle but mm. it's hard to kind of work that into a translation so i get why they've done it it's not it's not the best way of going about it but it gets the point across it's it's a bit hammerheaded but there you go um so we've got the chapter 7 blue White Flames of Anger Part 3. This is the final chapter here. I just want to point out the cover, first of all, is that it's got Oyuki, and then you've got a chibi version of Lum, Benten, and Run, which is kind of saying that, you know, like, Oyuki is the main focus here, like, and everyone else is kind of acting like children.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I love that, yeah, implication. Yeah, by like, chibifying the characters out, it does portray the more childlike compared to, like, the more like, demure, mature-looking Oyuki in the other page. That is really clever. Mm. I also think it's very cute seeing Benten, Chibi Benten, chase Chibi Ron. And Chibi Ron's yeah, so have- <laughs> Chibi Benten is, is, is
1: very cute. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's always like that, that little five-year-old troublemaker that we've all known.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably my daughter in this case, actually. <laughs> so this chapter is basically, it starts with a fight between Benten and Ron. There's a, there's a bit of sneaky attacks. One of the great things here is that Benten figuratively and literally lets her hair down, mm. which is kept up by a, a chain. Uh, there's more of a fight that ensures Benten is usually seen to have the upper hand. Uh, however, Ran begs for her life and then, of course, cheats. They all end up going back to uh, the UFO, and then they find out where the lemming was, and Oyuki starts giving the lemming a lecture. And that's when you see the terrifying power of Oyuki. even though she doesn't seem physically angry. Her powers just go out of control and start freezing everything, including ice spikes that will just suddenly shoot out of the ground, potentially endangering all the life around and everything is just frozen despite the fact that she doesn't seem angry and she's not angry at anyone in particular her powers are so out of control that everyone suddenly sees why Run was so afraid of Oyuki in the first place Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is a this is a great a great conclusion to this three-part story and you find out that Oyuki is still the mature one, and she doesn't lose her cool, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's she is still well within uh, you know, like she she doesn't get angry, it's just that when she is so annoyed or she's lecturing someone, uh, her powers just basically seep out in a way that is dangerous to anyone within the local vicinity.
0: Yeah. No, I and mean, it is like a creepy visual of like her and the ice spider web, you know, like mm. a, literally to, to trap the lemming, like she has created like these icy spider webs that have like these icicles that, you know, drop out from it and like are so sharp, like they can crack the floor. And yeah, they just sh- shoot up like these ice spikes all over the the floor, like, as she's trying to prevent, like, the target of her ire from getting away. And it's indiscriminate, too, because it also catches Benton and Ron the there and we see the panel of, like, both of them being pinned against the wall from the ice spikes. Like, ice spikes are literally going through Ron's hair and dress. You <laughs> It's like, they are they are barely edge out of harm's way, just from the from being the proximity of Oyuki being angry, not even her being angry at them, but at the Slimming. So yeah, no, Ron was very right to fear Oyuki's rat because it's she's very dangerous. And you can yeah. see why she backs down from the, the fight with Benten. What makes her back down is like Oyuki saying that if she doesn't shop, she'll get angry. Like, and that's enough to yeah. make Ron like just. like give up and be you know docile so yeah and it is
1: interesting watching run uh curtail to someone because even in the fight against ben 10 and i love this fight it it, it's incredibly action-packed and it's just fun because ben 10 just wants ben 10 just love wants to brawl basically Mm -hmm. you just you just get the feeling that she just wants a good barmy and Run is just pulling out all of these trick after trick after trick, grenades, bazookas, trying to drain her youth, and all that kind of stuff. And Benten just just fucking wants to pummel her. Yeah. And I I just love the visage here, and and just the way that uh, Benten's hair is let down and it's it's kept up by a physical metal chain is also really good as well. She takes the chain out of her hair to reveal that she actually has, like, you know, back-length, beautiful flowing hair, and the chain that she keeps up there is literally just a spare weapon.
0: Yeah. It's really cool that she uses it to, like, catch Ron's sword to, like, Mm. neutralize that as a threat. And, of
1: course, Ron pretends to be, like, the girly girl and cries and and Mm -hmm. begs forgiveness and then pulls a, a grenade out from under her skirt.
0: <laughs> Very emotionally manipulative. Like she tries to use all sorts of cheap tricks in order to catch Benton off guard, in order to just explode her. Television, but I love the sequence of like them fighting in the forest too, like hiding behind the trees, Ron using the hammer blammer to blow up a tree. It's really cool. Like there's some really cool action beats in these past two chapters, and like this fight between Ron and Benton in particular.
1: I do love the use of mallets in mm. Uh Like we, we joke about Hammer Space, which is like the whole mallet thing is is actually from uh, Looney Tunes, and has definitely been co opted for um, for a lot of manga, especially in in Rumiko Takahashi's works. Uh, I think Akane uh, from Ranma Half is probably the most famous for using yeah. Hammer Space, just pulling a, a, a mallet out of nowhere, but. But here, I, I do just love the visage of people, even if it's a small mallet or a small hammer. She still pulls it out and tries to basically murder Ben Ten, and it like it chops an entire tree down, and she tosses yeah. it away after it's done. Like it's, it's just funny because like like Ben 10's all here for a fight, but she just wants a fair fight. Like she just wants to like really go after mm-hmm. run. In a fair way, and she's sick of the fight by the end because she knows she's not going to get a fair fight because, you know, she's either going to try a trick or she's just going to call her meanie and be emotionally manipulative.
0: Yeah, no, Ron is such a bad sport that she hates yeah. fighting. It's just super unfun. But yeah, especially because like like you say, Benton's in it for the love of a fight. Ron is just in it to win and get back at people who have wronged her. So. Like, that's, like, what she well, – the whole motivates her to fight Benton is, like, the idea is, like, oh, I can beat her. Like, yeah, she, Ron will only take fights she knows she can win, <laughs> no matter what she has to do in order to win. Exactly.
1: And I think I think you, you pointed out the whole passive aggressiveness of Oyuki is precisely how this chapter ends. Like, she doesn't even know she's using her incredibly powerful, like, moisture-freezing ice powers creating spiderwebs and, and and spikes that are literally a danger to everyone without getting angry and like that's her way of lecturing someone like she doesn't even realize she's doing this which is a, like as passive aggressive as you can get mm. yeah okay so now we're on to chapter 8 transformation spray
0: yeah we're finally getting ataru and the rest of our You know, Tomobiki High class sneaks again after these past few chapters. So, yeah, and it starts off basically: Ataru encounters Ten using transformation spray to disguise himself with various things, and Ataru. Convinces Ten to spray himself and he turns into Lum. Basically how the transformation spray works is that it turns into whatever you're thinking about. And Ataru basically tricks Ten into giving him the rest of the spray by basically scaring him as Lum. And then he tries to go out and hit on various different girls, uh, basically dressed as people they would be friendly to or like romantically. But none of these chances really work out for him. Some of the most interesting interactions is that he tries to romance uh, Ryunosuke by disguising himself as Shinobu. And then do the same for Shinobu by disguising himself as Ryunosuke. So really leading Mm. to kind of that Yuri shipping between them. But yeah, like, Yoko you know, well, he he also does this. He doesn't want to transform into Mendo, so he'd rather transform into a girl to romance Shinobu than Mendo. But he also is not above like thinking of Mendo to kind of like <laughs> put kind of scapegoat Mendo for like you know landing on onto Mark and getting in trouble. But basically, as a result of all this confusion that Atari's created through the use of transformation spray. You know, like everyone is kind of up in arms. There are a lot of people like angry at Ataru, Mendo in particular, a lot of people have kind of been confused by like thinking other people are interested in, him, namely Shinobu and Rdoke and each other and then basically, like when Ataru comes to the class, Lom and Mendo charge at him, and Lum zaps the transformations play and it causes it to explode around the class, and so everyone turns into whatever they were thinking about. And so, like, Ataru turns into Lom, Lom turns into Ataru, Mendo turns into Ataru, all the girls that mistakenly thought Mendo was hitting on them and proposed marriage to them because Ataru went around disguised as Mendo hitting on them, like, they all turned to Mendo... Ryu turns into Shinobu and vice versa, and then a lot of other classmates who weren't thinking about other people at all were just turned into, like, various foods, like Robin or taiyaki, <laughs> bento boxes. Some people turn into a cow, or, you know, there's some people turn into, like, <laughs> people who were playing cards and turn into, like, Hanabuda cards or whatever, then, yeah, there's, like, a... I guess someone turned into like you know a naked woman. It just, it just, people turn into all sorts of crazy weird things. The final p- panel in this chapter. This is a this is
1: a fun chapter. I think um, there's something in this that makes me think that it could have could have been a bit better. Mm-hmm. The joke at the end of this chapter is that um, Ataru doesn't get anywhere. Like he uses this spray to become other people, but he thinks he doesn't deserve to be punished. Because he didn't have enough fun, which mm-hmm. I, I think is a, is, a, is a great way to end that chapter. Like nothing works out for Ataru. Yeah, but uh, this is this is interesting because it, it does play off the um the Rionosuke and Shinobu shipping.
2: Yeah,
0: a little bit. And this is one of two chapters in this volume that does that. Which yeah,
1: and Takahashi really seems to poke the bear. I think it's fair to say in this aspect, like she really, she seems to really consider it for a while. Like she's going, can I do this? Is this okay? This seems mm-hmm. fun. Can I keep doing this? And she kind of just, she pokes at the subject without actually it ever really leading anywhere.
0: Yeah. But it's interesting because of how the, they take it, Ryu and Shinobu, like they, they're yeah. kind of blushing. They're kind of like, not really sure what to do with her feelings, but there do seem to be some feelings there. Uh, and as later are, sh- and- shows that Ryu does like Shinobu, even though she doesn't know whether it's romantically or not. So it's it's both like intriguing to me as someone who really likes you know seeing queer characters explored or depicted, but it also is frustrating yeah. to me because I know that Takahashi is so steeped in like heteronormativity. And that she's never going to fall to or commit on this. And especially in the later chapter, that kind of discusses that it's like so frustrating. And it's just, it if is. you want to see Riy- uh, reimagined in a modern context, that actually takes advantage and explores queer identities and attraction. But and I, I, still, I, think I still appreciate you've... the shipping between you and Shinobu. I do, like I do as
1: well. And I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say it's frustrating mm. because she skirts around the topic. She hints at it and she pokes it. Like it's right. It's it's right there. And she's like going, you know, these two here, they're obviously thinking about each other at the end of the chapter. They don't know what's going on. So I think, does she, does she like me? But I'm mm. not, I'm not Yuri. Am I? Wait, am I? Ooh, I don't know. And unfortunately in Showa era Japan, there's just not, that much of a context to say you know these people are queer mm. and takahashi really does seem to like to want to move around the subject and explore it a bit more but either she just doesn't have the chops to do it or she doesn't know how to go about it or she just plays it off for comedic reasons and i think that's why it's frustrating is cuz there's just never there's never a big payoff there and it would have been nice to explore that relationship a little bit more, but she never just quite gets it together there. But, yeah, uh, yeah Ataru just doesn't have enough fun in this. Like, he he tries to go whole hog and I, I think Ataru really could have, if the, if the focus was on more of Ataru, like, trying to be Mendo for more of a chapter or yeah. be one or other particular character, it could have been more fun. But instead, it just kind of, like, Ataru actually says at the end, eh, just doesn't... I, I didn't really have fun doing this. Like, this was kind of a nothing event.
0: Yeah, I I like the chapter uh, just fine. I think the ending gag of, like, everyone being transformed into what they're thinking about is really great, especially. And I appreciate the shipping moments. But I'm like, yeah, I think that what would have been really uh, put this over top was if like it played into Ataru chasting himself with Mendo and getting Mendo in all sorts of trouble more, I think yeah. that is where there' gonna been more potential for like a lot of mayhem, so <laughs> yeah, I feel like if this I don't remember if this was adapted, it probably was, but I don't remember, but I can't
1: uh, remember off the top of my head if it was, it wasn't particularly memorable. Yeah. The the one thing I will say about this is the art of like whenever Ataru transforms into someone else and he transforms mm. into um Sakura's fiance and into a cat and into Shinobu and into Ryunosuke it always has Ataru's facial expression. Like yeah. Ataru has a particular facial expression and and uh, Takahashi is really good at portraying that even though this character looks exactly like who it's meant to look like, it's still got Ataru's kind of flakish <laughs> kind of look about him. A yeah. kind of giggling sort of, I'm getting away with something, I'm being a pervert sort of thing.
0: Yeah, it's like goofy, smiling face. Mm. Yeah. I guess, well, one notice uh, that we, we kind of skipped over that there is a moment where Ataru, like, disguised himself as Tsubame bomb- to kind of uh, romance Sakura and I just found that kind of sequence interesting or little because like, Sakura when like Ataru as Sabami is like going into kiss her like she does kind of blush and she does get like embarrassed when like she knows that Cherry is watching them and stuff like that so hmm. I kind of like seeing kind of more of that like kind of vulnerable side to Sakura like when she is like being romanced by Sabami or like who she thinks is Sabami which is kind of because you don't usually see that with Sakura. Like, pure, like, blushing yeah. in that way.
1: Like, she, she really loves her fiancé, and those two are basically the only mature relationship that's in Urusei Yatsura, and that's why mm-hmm. everyone else pervs on them all the time. Yeah. It's because they have, like, a normal functioning relationship for the most part. The, the, the yeah. one thing I will add at the bottom here is that the, the person who turns into a, a Tanuki statue um, which is often out the front, like a ceramic tanuki, like a raccoon. Obviously, um, usually with, like with a massive set of testicles, ball sack, out the front <laughs> is actually is a real thing in Japan, and is out the front of businesses as a good luck piece, sort of thing. Uh, and the person who changes into that is kind of like the fourth person in a in the ataru. Mendo Kyosuke men's group it's explored in the next volume a little bit more about who this person is he's kind of a bit chunky with like um with like a, a curly hairstyle but his hmm. name is actually Hokuto oh. and you kind of do hmm. run into him and you kind of like he is part of the group sometimes when they need like a fourth guy or even like a third guy if it's just meant to be Ataru and Kyosuke and someone else who's not Mendo so it's good that takahashi kind of has this guy who's always there he, and when they started taking a, like confiscating items kosuke's was a walkman and his was a like a, a tanuki a ceramic tanuki statue and that's what he's thinking about <laughs> here which i just think is it's like a just a a funny little side gag that is just all he's he's forever present but you don't really know who this guy is
0: yeah that's a good catch Uh, He's only named once. (laughs) (laughs) One of the most minor, minor, but still uh, recurring a lot in the classroom. And I guess that's just, we might as well point out that Kosuke is the person who transformed into the Gyudon because he's discussing with other classmates about, like, what uh, food they want to eat. So
1: yeah. I just love there's a horse at the back of the classroom as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, someone was thinking, a oh, horse is turned into a Someone was thinking of a missile and turned into a missile. So it's like so interesting
2: <laughs> what these people
0: are thinking of.
1: It is. Yeah. It, and, and that's the, like, as as a person who went to school with a bunch of horse people, like people who loved horses and like had horses and rode horses all the time, I could imagine like at least half of the girls in my class would have turned into horses.
2: Mm.
0: I mean speaking of like equine like animals that leads us to our next chapter, I think.
1: It does. It does indeed. Um, so this is chapter nine, Lum Becomes a Cow. And my, my summary here uh, let me just check. Lum becomes a cow. Okay, now next chapter, chapter ten, Foxes in the Moonlight. <laughs>
0: Oh, God, there's more to it than that. There is a (laughs) lot more to this. This is a sweet chapter. I really like this
1: chapter. Um, The art is especially good. Um, But basically what happens is they're near a pet store. Uh, There are a lot of things I want to point out, but I'll, I'll, I'll just rush through the chapter. A cow bites Ataru, then the cow bites Lum. Lum has a nightmare uh, while she's watching TV. Her horns grow bigger. She thinks she's turning into a cow. Uh, and she goes to talk to Ataru, and Ten is also worried about her. Lum confronts Ataru and says, will you please take care of me even if I'm a cow? Ataru Tiroli says yes, builds a stable for her. Uh, But it turns out (laughs) that um, horns grow bigger in uh, in the Oni species uh, uh, when their immune system uh, starts to kick in big time, effectively. Uh, when they need to, like, cure an infection or something like that, because all of their powers come from their horns. So their horns grow bigger if there is, like, if there's some sort of infection or something like that. Uh, This is a really sweet chapter. Mm -hmm. It's really funny. The first thing I really must point out is that they're at a pet shop called Yoshinoya. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now, if you don't know what Yoshinoya is, it is a fast food chain in Japan, which is incredibly popular for gyudon. Uh, which is beef bowl, and so the first thing you see at this Yoshinoya pet store is a cow.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so it's 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 very very funny. Like it's um it's an obvious play here. It's an obvious pun on on you know the fact that this pet store called Yoshinoya has a cow, which is famous for beef. Yeah. The way the cow is drawn is just fucking hilarious. Like with that <laughs> that, that that big tooth grin that will just suddenly bite people. Mm. And then it bites Lum, and Lum just electrocutes the cow. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's so much great art here of like when Lum is dreaming. There's just like a cow laughing while there's like a cow version of Lum that looks a little bit like Ray, and mm-hmm. I think this like basically freaks her out in like a in like a vampire esque kind of way.
0: Yeah, cause she's also like thinking about a vampire serial she's like watching on the TV. But in yeah. this one, it's like a humanish vampire and it's like bites this alien woman who was like the alien woman like to us would look more like a fishy monster but like when she is like bit and transformed into the you know vampire she becomes more like a human woman and she thinks, oh no i'm hideous and like all the the people around her like saying, like oh my god she's such a monster when it's like to our perception she's like you know looks like more of like a normal human woman rather than like the fishy alien creature she was before. <laughs> so that's like a fun like little gag there while Lum is also thinking about like her being transformed into something unlike itself, like <laughs> that, that cow Lum
1: form. Yeah. It is also fun just to see Lum in her UFO sometimes. Like she's, mm-hmm. this, this does kind of play off the alien nature of Lum a little bit. And I, as I said before, I love these chapters. One yeah. thing I want to point out is when Lum comes back to school with her hair in a bun to hide her enlarged horns, she says she wants to talk to Ataru. And they both walk out the window and they're on the third floor. Yeah, and Ataru just drops down. And then he just crashes to Earth. And it's a very wily coyote Looney Tunes moment. <laughs> yeah. Because they both walk out the window. Lum, of course, can fly. And Ataru does take a couple of steps before he goes, oh, yeah, fucking gravity. And then just plummets to the Earth. And when they go to Sakura, she's like, oh, you fell from the third floor? That can't be true. He's not, like, at caused, he's not hurt at all. Ataru was caught. He's not hurt at all. One sympathy from from um,
0: Sakura. Like from he's Sakura. just so resilient. Like he didn't get damaged <laughs> by, from these stories. <laughs> uh, it's
1: good. I just love that. It's it's such a it's such a great look. But there is a very sweet moment where Lum reveals her enlarged horns, and like Ataru promises to effectively take care of her. And they're both crying and Ataru is building a stable for Lum. And Lum is looking very sheepishly worried uh, in the last panel there. This is just very sweet. Ataru is a little bit more less Ataru in this chapter, I suppose, towards the end.
0: No, this is where Atari's selfless side and the fact that he does actually care about Lum really comes out because he is clearly worried about her. Like, he asks yeah, he really consent, is. something is wrong. Like, because Lum at first is not being honest with him about, like, what's happening. She just tells him, mm. if I disappear one day and the cow shows up in my place, will you take care of it? Will you need it after me and take care of it? And he's like, well, what's going on? Like, she tries to leave and he, like, clings on to her and it's like it says hey you gotta explain this to me and then like you know then's when the horns get revealed and then like at first he tries to insult him and say like, you know it's not like vampire rules you don't you don't know for sure you're gonna turn in cow and then he's like kind of mm. he recognizes what he she was trying to do that she was trying to leave and quietly turn in a cow instead of like right in front of her him and like he his first thoughts is being worried about like her being alone and if when she was turning the kanji, this like he's saying, like, if you got caught, you know, you could have like been turned into sukiyaki, you know, it's, it's a joke, <laughs> but like he genuinely he's showing concern about her, like about what she was trying to do and. Like, he genuinely starts to cry up. And he's, like, telling her, no. you don't have to leave. I'll take care of you. And he, like, hugs in and embraces her genuinely. And he's, like, building a stable for her, like, while well, crying. Like, he he genuinely is just, cares about he love. He is incredibly worried. That's why being. I said
1: it's not like the normal Ataru. Like, mm-hmm. you see more of Ataru in this chapter than you normally would. And I think that's really good. Uh, and you've seen it in the previous chapter with the boxing gloves. But Ataru has this sweet side that is just shining through a lot more in these later chapters, I think. Yeah. And it is just, it's not like there is a panel here where he just said, I like that skirt fluttering in the wind, but Ataru really lo- looks wistful and doesn't yeah. look like his normal self in, in, in a lot of these panels. And I think that's really sweet. And it, it, it really adds to his character. But it is a little bit out of character in that uh, Takahashi is trying to show that, yeah, like, Ataru is a shameless pervert, but he's got this other side to him, and she's trying to bring that out a little bit more. Yeah. And the the other thing I want to point out in this chapter is uh, you do get to see uh, Lum's dad, who is my favourite uh, big <laughs> character in this, <laughs> who is just basically on the screen saying, oh, yeah, nothing to worry about. Like, our horns are our source of of our power and energy. Um, so if a pathogen gets into our system, our horns grow longer. And we already know this because when the horns drop out, Onis lose their power and mm-hmm. all their power comes from their horns. So it's got, just got that little bit of, of like alien ease in there, which I really appreciate you know, you're just reminded that, yeah, Lum is an alien, like, and yeah. weird things do happen to her and not just because of her.
0: Yeah, it's a cool new detail about alien biology, though it also makes you wonder, like Lum said she researched about, like, you know, cases about aliens being bitten by cows, but I guess she didn't, like, do any research to, you know, find out whether, like, her (laughs) horns growing in this way what's like a common thing for Onis or not. Cause it sounds like it is, it's not really a big deal, but like she, she no. was so like tunnel vision, single mind focused, like specifically, Oh, what happens if an alien is bitten by a cow that she didn't think to look up? Oh, what happens if I, as an Oni, my no, horns, horns grow, grow in yeah. this certain way? Yeah.
1: She knows so little about her own biology. It's yeah. it's just fascinating <laughs> sometimes.
2: <laughs>
0: Ugh. The one last thing I want to comment about the, this chapter before we move on is like there's some really great expressions in this, especially like oh there are Lum's pain expressions of like grief towards the end when like her horns are revealed to Ataru, like the the panel where like the hair bun is coming off and like the horn is being revealed, like Lum's expression there, like the shock and horror of it, all all is like super and like is super affecting but then also like forced her like tearing up turning her Mm. head like with the realization like everything was exposed and then like just her crouching down like her hands and her head and her hands it was like oh man and then
1: it's very moving like that panel i think takahashi just looked like she had a great time drawing this like the the hair revealing like the hair flowing Mm mm-hmm and, it, you know, moving panels like this don't happen a lot in Urusei so it looks like she took a lot of pleasure in, like, sketching and drawing this out.
0: Yeah, these are some of the most mature, emotionally intense panels in the series mm. up to this point, and perhaps in the entirety of the series, excepting the last few moments of the the final chapter. So, yeah, like, it's it's really moving emotional stuff but i also love Lum's expression on the very last panel of this chapter like her look of like embarrassment is uh, and also kind of dread almost and realizing yeah. that oh she made all this big hullabaloo to otaru and now she has to explain to him <laughs> that oh. oh it's not a big deal after all it's 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 all good yeah and she does <laughs> she kind of doesn't want
1: to say it because he's making such an effort
0: yeah um for her
1: the, the other one panel I will point out here is, like, the way Takahashi draws cows in a non-serious, because Takahashi always, when she draws, like, an animal character who's not meant to be serious, they always have this massive grin of teeth.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: there's this one where it's just a cow that just has a name tag that says Lum, and <laughs> Ataru is petting it saying, oh, you sweetie pie. It's just <laughs> such a fun panel. Like, just, just a fun, like, little drawing of a taru and a cow, like, shaking its hoof. Like, saying, oh, you sweetie pie. With just, like, a like a cow with a massive grin. I, it's just a fun sort of drawing to Very look at. Very
0: classic Takashi goofy animal gag. I guess that's the only other panel I want to comment on, or little uh, visual joke I want to comment on. is that when they go to the pet shop, like, we see that there's, like, a dog <laughs> with a, like, a pipe in its mouth and reading the newspaper (laughs) and then there's a cat like eating out of a a rice out of a bowl with chopsticks and i just thought that's kind of funny that we have like these very human acting animals in this pet store (laughs) alongside like these other just like actual animal like domestic animals so that's just a fun visual gag i just want to briefly i think she had a she just
1: had so much fun writing this chapter. I think mm. it, it, it's very sweet. It has everything that Urusei, you know, it's got the alien, the alien element. It's got the comedy element. It's got the the the, the you know the heartwarming element. It's just a, a fun, self-contained chapter of Urusei
0: Absolutely. Okay, and
1: next, we've got chapter ten, Foxes in the
0: Moonlight. It's another Kitsune chapter. We have this really nice cover page of kind of. Woman Shinobu with foxtails and ears, and that leads us into what the premise of the chapter is, is that Kitsune is kind of inspired by this old tale of a fox kind of wooing this human girl it fell in love with by cooking up some foxtails and feeding it to her, transforming her into a beautiful fox, and then like being able to spend a night together. And he's trying to do the same with Shinobu. And he's gotten some foxtails and is going to find Shinobu. But it's a big hub-up at the Tomobiki shopping district. And he ends up losing the foxtails accidentally when he bumps into Kodatsu Neko. Then he does eventually like come across Taro and Lum. And they take her to Shinobu. And that's when he realizes he's dropped the foxtails. And it comes out what he's trying to do with the foxtails. But even though now they know that he wants to transform Shinobu into a fox. Like, Shinobu, you know, she thinks that Katune is very earnest, so she agrees to help him, and Otaru and Lum tag wit. And so they look everywhere, and eventually they stumble upon, like, kind of Cherry's campsite. At first they try to ignore Cherry, if <laughs> they don't want anything to <laughs> do with it, even though he keeps asking, what are they up to? Eventually, they just kind of give up on finding the foxtails that night and just enjoy some of cherry stew. And he feeds the entire group, and it's very good. Like, at first, like, they don't want to eat anything that Cherry is making, but when Katatsu seems to really like it, that's when everyone decides to try it. And it turns out it was made out of the horse tails that Katatsu found when it bumped into every... It could, Kitsune before, and so everyone is transformed to little foxes after all. and so the chapter ends with, it seems everyone's not really super aware of the fact they've been transformed to the foxes besides Kitsune, but Kitsune is happy to see Shinobu transformed to a fox and be able to spend <laughs> this night with uh, fox the Kits- fox Shinobu. Uh, yeah. It's a cute little Katsune chapter. I really like the sequence where it's pretty wordless that Katsune is just traveling through the town and, like, keeps being scared of, like, the hustle and bustle of the city and, like, scary, like, dogs that are chasing after it that get scared off by and Neko in turn. It's a good, like, three pages of, like, kind of just wordless action that I like. And... Yeah, I think it's a sweet sentiment uh, with Kitsune here. Like, it just wants to spend, like, a night with, you know, Shinobu as a fox to have, like, kind of a bit of a more of a connection with her, and that Shinobu's, like, very kind and understanding to A. So, yeah, I think that's very cute. And then, of course, the best part, the funniest part is, like, just the gag of, like, them ignoring Cherry when he keeps going up to them and tries to ask, what are they up to? Until he, <laughs> when we have one of those classic Cherry gets so close to the battle moments that it forces them to acknowledge him <laughs> and squash him down. So that's, like, a great gag. It
1: is. I, I, I do like the, the, the Kitsune chapters. I, I get the feeling that um, Takahashi just wanted to draw a cute little fox. And this yeah. is just like the medium where she just wanted to do that. And these chapters are always very sweet. They're very inconsequential, but they do give a focus on Shinobu as a yeah. character, which is probably the entire purpose behind these things. Because the more you get into the alienness, and the more you get into like uh, wacky hijinks with Ataru, Shinobu doesn't always get a Guernsey as much as she did in the early stories, where she was basically you know the third wheel. Mm. And as things moved forward and you know that uh, you just know that their relationship has changed, especially between Shinobu and Ataru, despite the fact that you you see kind of occasional glimpses that, you know, Shinobu does care about Ataru, just not in a romantic way anymore. Um, this is a good way to pull Shinobu back in.
0: Yeah, no, that's one of the things I really appreciate about Kitsune chapters is that it does put a spotlight on Shinobu and shows off some for a kindler, gentler side that we don't often get a focus on in other chapters. And these stories in general are a lot sweeter uh, than a lot of other Yursi Otso stories. Like they have kind of a more touching moment to them at the end of them. I think it is very cute also seeing like transform into like... Different versions of the characters, like Shinobu, Ataru, and Lum stuff,
2: but also that is very like, cute.
0: What I pretty appreciate is that it shows off, yeah, how changed the dynamic between the original central three characters were—Ataru, uh, of Shinobu, and Lum—and yeah, I think especially like in these chapters, uh, in this volume, we kind of see like uh, a really changed dynamic between Shinobu and Ataru from when you would think. Uh, from the earlier point of the series, like, you know he's, like, just pretty chill with Otaro, like, even when he's being aggressive, like, she'll beat him down, or she'll, like, kind of pick her his hand off of her, but she's generally pretty mm. amiable and friendly with him, and she's no longer antagonistic with Lum, so you can have a chapter like this where all three of them are just, like, hanging out, and as friends, and just problem-solving, mm. you know, there's something going on with Katsune together, you know? And I, I like seeing that growth for them, like that they're now like just kind of close sort of friends like this.
1: It is really good to see because like Lum and Shinobu are never going to be really close good friends, but they are friends and they do team up yeah, um, a few times to good effect as well. Mm. Uh, but it is, it is such a, an interesting dynamic from the start of the series where Lum was effectively the antagonist of the series when it first started. And in the very early chapters, you actually see Ataru go into the future and meet his future son, and it is the son of him and Shinobu. Mm-hmm. So for a long time in the original series, it's like, okay, like obviously Lum goes away at some point, and you know, Shinobu and Ataru do get together and this is their son. So for for a while, like for a few chapters at the start, you think, okay, this is the future that's gonna happen. And then of course later you realize that's not the case and things, the dynamic definitely changes.
0: Right, the series evolved so far beyond that initial yeah. setup of what the character dynamics are. I fully yeah. believe when Takashi had wrote that chapter, he did think that the series would end with Ataru and Shinobu as the central couple. Lum was just a fleeting antagonist who would go away. But obviously yeah. as the series went on, Lum and Ataru became so much closer. And the Relationships between the characters just shifted so much. So, I mean, that's one reason that I really love what she does with the Anaba the Dreammaker storyline in terms of reflecting upon that and upon the growth of these characters and how the future is a, a transformable, changeable thing. It's not just set in stone. Like how people are, the way they, the relationships to each other are just always permanent and they can change over time. I love that
1: effectively the future is not set. And I love that about Urusei yeah. Like Takahashi yeah. as the storyteller will go, you know what? Things have changed. This isn't the seventies anymore. Lum isn't the same character anymore. She's grown. Absolutely. These other characters have grown and this is going to be the new future. And that's why she set up the whole Inaba the Dream Maker thing, because it's like, yeah, there's like lots of possible futures out there, but you know what? I'm in charge. I get to decide what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Even if it's
1: different from my original plan, you know, five years ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, she really is it up to the characters in an arc, too, to decide what the future they want for themselves are and what the future they're going to protect is. And I really like mm. that. And that's something we'll talk more about when we get to that volume in next year, it's, basically. It's, but
1: it's coming up. It's coming up. Yeah, It's
0: coming up. But yeah, I mean, just to reflect upon Lam'jinu camaraderie, I do like the two moments uh, in this. Chapter in which, like, they're both on the same page and like getting Ataru to back off of them, and I, I really do like his <laughs> affection. Like, they're no longer kind of at odds with each other for Ataru's affections. They're both on the same page and like hmm. you know keeping him in line. So I like that. I especially like the panel where they're both like kind of pinching Ataru's wrists together to get him to like calm down. <laughs> I like that. I love his with the, the, the expression. In that panel
1: especially. And- it's also to Ataru that he's just he's no longer as focused on Shinobu either. Like he, mm. he still likes Shinobu in the same way that he likes every other woman as well. But obviously yeah. you know, his his focus has definitely shifted to Lum. Yeah.
0: It's so different from point. the beginning of the series where like Shinobu was his girl, like the girl that like, he yeah. you know really had his eyes on of like spending his life at marrying. And, like, like, he did kind of get distracted by her girls, but, like, in early chapters, there's real, like, no, Shinobu is, like, my girlfriend. But then, of course, that has changed so much over the course of the series. Mm. Okay, yeah.
1: now we're on to Chapter 11, Relationships by Ryunosuke. So this is, a, this is an interesting uh, Ryunosuke-focused chapter. Basically, Ryunosuke and her father are fighting, as per usual. Sakura interferes and asks uh rionosuke if she's ever actually been in love before and wants to bring out some more of her feminine qualities and it turns out all of her crushes previously have been women
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and as we go forward uh sakura tries to correct this by saying if anyone has a you know wants to be in a relationship with rionosuke you know come to the gym we're gonna have a fight in a boxing ring A fight ensues between many of the characters, including Ataru saying, I don't usually hit on girls. However, I make an exception today because you need a man to beat you for once. And of course, the chapter ends with uh, Rionosuke and her father fighting as per usual. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a sweetness to this. I don't think it's done in the right way. Mm -hmm. Particularly, but there is is a, a, a... You do... Kind of get a little bit of Ryunosuke's character here a little bit more, which is nice.
0: Yeah, this is another one that falls into that kind of category of like, man, I like how beer coded Ryunosuke is. I'm so frustrated mm. about Takashi's heteronormativity in that we are told so much that, well, Ryunosuke had all these crushes on women. Her first love was like her elementary school teacher. That she like cried and cried after she quit to get married or whatever. And like the woman, the person that she really likes now is Shinobu. And in- instead of pu- connecting dots it to say, well, maybe you are interested in girls, you know, maybe you are hmm. a lesbian, or at the very least, you're a bisexual leaning towards interest in women romantically. Then, yeah. like, you know, the, instead, sakura tries to quote-unquote correct us by saying oh no you just have never really been in love you've only been you know having crushes on girls but you haven't really been in love you can as a girl you can only be in real love with a man and it's just such a antiquated heteronormative perspective on like what love is and of course like what relationships are possible between people and it's frustrating to have to you know kind of reconciled the fact that you know Takashi writes these characters, writes characters like Unosuke that have that are so queer coded and has so many like really great moments in them that are very resonant to queer experiences, uh, but then like you have the text of the series continually reinforced that it does not believe in the validity of like uh, queerness or homosexual relationships, and it tries to force these characters down like a heterosexual pat and it's like kind of annoying to deal with it is very
1: yeah and that's why i think this is kind of a nothing chapter like i do like there is some insight into rionosuke and her past Mm. but it doesn't play off the right way i don't think
0: The character details that I would latch on to is that Ryunosuke says in this chapter that the person that she would describe as like her ideal, we'll say ideal man here, but let's just say ideal partner would be like, you know, someone who is strong and wild, like the ocean and tougher than me in a fight. And this Mm. declaration, you know, it's made a joke of here that, oh, she's describing someone like Mr. Hujinami, but this Mm. declaration is followed up with when the person that does get paired off with Ryunosuke towards the end of the series. So I do like that kind of setup here is that she does eventually encounter someone, his perfective partner, who embodies these qualities. And I also find it interesting, like at the end of the chapter, when Ataru is, you know, doing dirty tricks, like he you know, kind of injects an aesthetic to to weaken her, and then tries Mm. to take advantage of that to like, kind of grab her and stuff like that. Like, Mr. Fujinami actually comes to her defense. This is a rare time where Mr. Fujinami is actually protective in a In a very fatherly way, way. In a way that yeah. actually shows that he has concern over his child's well-being. That he would get mm. Ataru to back off like this. Like, come into her defense.
1: I think, like, the whole thing with Mr. Fujinami is that he is a terrible father and a terrible Absolutely. role model. Absolutely. But he does care about his daughter slash in his mind son like he's delusional to the point that he should be institutionalized but that doesn't mean there's no love there right uh, it's the wrong kind of love but yeah. you know he really does try and raise in his mind his son to be the most powerful the most respectful they can possibly be uh and y- you really do see a lot of the early kind of ranma genma sort of relationship come through here especially with the sunset as yeah. they're kind of fighting each sparring, other sparring you no
0: know, he tries to motivate her back into to invigorate her fighting spirit mm. and grab, grab The guy by the bracket thing yeah it's just an interesting character moment from mr Fujinami, like a rare moment where he actually is like parentally protective in like a, a helpful way rather than in a way that is like hindering the growth and happiness of his child so mm. it's an interesting wrinkle in, in his uh character that does show that he is capable of some some selfless acts but not overall in general he is a big detriment to his daughter's happiness yeah ability to live freely as herself but yeah i also think that a lot of the framing of the you know, fighting the ring is cool, even though, like, it doesn't lead to much in the fight. I do think the Ataru, like, Ryu fight had potential, but of course it just ends a little quick. But I think the image of, like, Ryu in the ring with, like, kind of her jacket, like, kind of uh, fluttering, mm. kind of like a cape, is super cool. That's an image that I think of, like, a lot when I think of, like, Ryu no You Yeah.
1: There is, this is definitely some more Ashtono Joe referencing here. Mm-hmm. You, they're in a ring. I thought, Takahashi just must have been going through a phase at the moment. (laughs) Yeah. You've got Rionosuke there, and she takes up a full third of the page, uh, you know, jacket with her wrappings around her, and she looks really cool. And then on the next page, you've actually got Ataru stepping up, and let's face it, he looks pretty cool. Like, he's got his jacket open, and he's got a serious look on his face, and it looks like shit is about to go down. And it is, but just not to the way that that they all think it is, especially when Ataru comes up with the sneaky anesthetic attack, uh, which is, like, it's, of course Ataru is going to do that, but it is it is interesting to see the art here, but just the, the way the fight plays out is just kind of, it just sits the wrong way with me, i got to say. Yeah. Especially in like 2021, you know, we're looking back at this, like this was 35 years ago in a different country, in a different culture. It just doesn't sit right. And I'm I'm prepared to say that. (laughs) This chapter was just a bit of a nothing.
0: It's not great when like you have a character suggest idea that, you know, having same sex attraction makes you a weirdo. And then if you've Mm. never been in love with someone of the opposite sex, you've never really been in love. And then for women, if you fall in love with a man, you'll become more feminine. And then, like, also, like, kind of buying into like this kind of—it's a cultural idea, I guess—but this idea that oh, it's natural for like women to you know quit working to get married, which is like, well, it doesn't have to be. It's common, yeah. but you know,
1: and and that's the problem. Time, like the the problem is that it's that way of thinking is still very prevalent in Japan at the moment. Mm. Um it's it's very very sad um that uh, like my my wife is incredibly smart, much smarter than I am. You know, she's bilingual. She is now in Australia. She's basically second in charge of a company, office manager. Nice. Whereas in Japan she was just she was just a person who was basically just like uh an office lady, corporate slave, you know, worked till midnight. Even though, like, what she did had little to no consequence, her bosses didn't think anything of her because she was a woman. She was afraid to tell people that she was engaged because they would stop giving her bonuses because they thought she would quit soon. Ugh. And that is still the case in Japan. Like, women are still fearful of their jobs if they say they're in a relationship and planning to get married. If they are married, that they're going to have kids soon and they're going to quit. And that way they'll have less opportunities and that is it's really a sad state um that is just not changing i think all the showa era people need to die out first before anything <laughs> changes to be completely honest with you
0: seriously um
1: yeah it's, it 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 is sad and it, it makes me quite sad but um you know that's also one of the reasons why we both live in australia now not in japan <laughs> <laughs> So we've got a data file here Rusayatsura data file 21 what are the qualities of a planetary ruler and this is all about uh Uyuki of Neptune mm-hmm.
0: Yeah it's an Uyuki profile it basically goes on to explain like her various like personality quirks is that what makes her a good leader is that she doesn't really lose control she's kind of like the silent observant type when she like commits to a like a story of like oh like she really goes into it, like she sees lots through the end, like the the file bluntly states, is that, you know, she is really willing to kind of do these mental gymnastics to say that she's kind of blameless and not at fault, which she can often get away with because she will not proactively participate in any mischief, but instead observe from the sidelines and go to on but not actually get involved in herself. And that way she can pass off blame and say she was never... Like, involved in it. And she can even say that, oh, I tried to stop you. I'm a good girl. So she can be very manipulated in that way. And, of course, as we saw in this volume, she is very merciless when she is angry. She, you know, has some scary powers that she'll let out uh, in a passive aggressive way, consciously or unconsciously, whether she realizes it. Like, we saw it with the Neptunian Lenin, but we will also see it in another chapter in this volume with the girl gang. (laughs) Where she just freezes them in a block of ice. I mean, you'll see it in future chapters as well. She'll just freeze people who rub her wrong in blocks of ice. So, yeah. And because of, like, all of these qualities of, like, she is, you know, like, very observant and calculating. She is very commanding in terms of, like, what her... Story is what her narrative is that she's going to present torturatively and that she can intimidate and enforce her power like over other people. All those qualities make her worthy of a queenly disposition and a really good planetary ruler. She, as the, the final quote says it really well, she's a bit scary, but a Yuki is the type of ruler who inspires absolute confidence and support in his uh, whether it's through fear or actual and respect. <laughs>
1: This is interesting because Oyuki is an actual queen. Mm
2: -hmm. Like,
1: you've seen her as a young person, but you see her as the absolute monarch of an entire planet. Like, she is the queen of Neptune. She's not a princess. She's not someone who goes off and has wacky adventures. She's in charge of the entire planet, which I, I think is interesting because she has a lot more responsibility than the other characters do.
0: Yeah, cuz is just one of the seven lucky gods. Mom yeah. is the princess of Oniboshi, but she doesn't really have like any responsibilities or duties. Like her father basically seemed to handle everything in that regard. she yeah, seems yeah, to I mean, have he, he abdicated
1: yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah she she runs the entire planet, and she has those responsibilities of not just the people but obviously the animals as well of as mm-hmm. we've seen with like the lemmings who have seen have some semblance of um of awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she basically rules the entire planet and she's happy to spend time with her friends, but she's a lot more serious Mm -hmm. than the other ones are. And it, it does seem that you always forget that Lum is a princess. It seems that when she came to live together with Ataru on Earth, she kind of abdicated any of her responsibilities to Oniboshi and she just wants to live happily with Ataru, which is interesting because in a lot of media outside of japan they always say lum is like lum the invader or lum invader princess of the oniboshi people or something like that and she's not really any of those things she's just lum Mm -hmm. like takahashi never plays up that particular part of her character other than the first episode and other than like the fact that her dad seems to be in charge of oniboshi but not in any particular serious way yeah like, you know he doesn't wear a crown he doesn't sit on a big throne he's just like he's just a dad <laughs>
0: he commands military might as we see in the first movie and yeah but that's not in really the, the only instance yeah and the manga yeah. really doesn't kind of like even in the final arc when mom is in danger you know he doesn't really like throw the might of oniboshi and to get involved or whatever so yeah It's it's something that does kind of get dropped or not really played up as things go along. Whereas Oyuki's status as a queen is something that is reflected upon even more so as the series goes on. Because it is acknowledged in this uh, storyline we covered, and it is acknowledged in storylines going forward. That we see Oyuki is attended to by various servants and subjects, and yeah, she does command a lot of authority.
1: Yeah, she does seem to. She does seem to be royalty, and she acts like royalty, which is probably where a lot of that passive aggressiveness shit comes from. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about Lum as well is that overseas, like in the West, Lum is also known as Lum Invader, and Mm -hmm. in Japan, she's never she's never referenced as that. Like Invader is the occupation rather than like the surname or anything like that. Like in in a whole, like I have a card that has like Lum's like identification on it i suppose and it just says lum like it's not lum invader or anything like that and it has a birth date and all that other stuff on it but it just says lum which i think is interesting because it's kind of like a you just have like a one singular name like surnames are just not a thing that like really occurs to alien species
0: yeah it's kind of like an invented surname through localization that yeah, sometimes it really has is. happened. But it's kind of like in Dragon Ball, like Bulma gained the surname Briefs when she is not... That's not her family's surname. Her dad is named Dr. Briefs, but she is not Bulma Briefs uh, as was originally intended. It's almost like Mario Brothers. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, they,
1: their last name must be Mario. And in the movie they said, oh, it's Mario Mario um, and <laughs> Luigi Mario. <laughs> It's like, no, you guys don't get it. It's like, it's kind of like, it's the name that's attached and often an occupation. Like I was called Andrew Sensei. Neither of those things are correct. (laughs) But that's just what I was known as. Uh, You know, because you would normally have my, like my my maiden name, which is Campbell. I should have been Campbell Sensei. And I didn't like, I don't really like the name Campbell very much. So (laughs) I went as Andrew. And so they just called me Andrew Sensei. Like I'm not I'm a teacher, but not really like a qualified teacher. So <laughs> So as I said, neither of those things in that particular conjunction are correct. It's just the way that Japanese people talk, and people don't really understand understand that in the West, and sometimes people are obsessed with a name and a surname, which is why Lum is Lum the Invader. Uh and so with the back page here we've got uh the count column, uh which is mm-hmm. Tiger Stripes Battle victories.
0: It's all the times Ten and Torajima have fought, which apparently have been six times. And out of those six times, Ten has won his battle with Torajima only once. And that was in the chapter where he was trying to deliver a special carnation to his mom for Mother's Day.
1: Yeah. So a bit more motivation there.
0: Yeah. Tiger Suba sold him and you know, Ten like was able to beat him by bringing fire on him to recover mm. the flowers. So yeah, I mean, I'm actually surprised it's actually, I'm always surprised, I guess, from reading discount follows that, like, things that I feel like happen more times actually do not happen as much as uh, I thought. But, hmm. yeah, I mean, there have been six times where we've seen Ten in Torijima fight, and I feel like we've seen two of them in the span of, like, a, this omnibus volume. So, yeah, it's, it doesn't happen as often as you think, but Torijima does Become more of a prominent character, I feel, as the series goes on. At least you start I to think notice so, yeah. him a little more. Yeah, he's
1: definitely a C character who just kind of pops mm-hmm. up, and like you even see Ten riding him like the Lone Ranger sometimes, like yeah. with a mask and and rapier and stuff like that.
0: The Masquerade Ball chapter, yeah,
1: yeah. So it's once again, I think, just Takahashi just likes drawing animals sometimes. Mm. uh because she's probably once again so sick of drawing humans and human interaction during a uh, masonic ikoku era that she just kind of like wants to go all out when she's doing a atsura wants
2: Absolutely.
1: to flex those uh like those art muscles a little bit mm. and um you yeah, look this was a this was a good chap this was like a good it's basically we're only going to do half of chapter 11 today because we've already been going on for over uh, yeah. two hours.
0: <laughs> no, we we try to like streamline our summaries, but in the end we this is one of our longer uh, discussions, even just covering half of the volume. So we are yeah, so I think bad we'll, at this.
1: We are so bad. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: there to were a time. lot of really good storylines and a lot of interesting things to talk about. So I think we got a lot out of it. I hope you guys did as yeah. well. But yeah. This still a closer decision of the first half of Volume 11. Next time we'll cover the second half of the volume, which, again, was not a really big one because it starts off with a big four-chapter arc that introduces a new secondary character who becomes pretty prominent from there on out. So a lot yeah. of good stuff to look forward to in the next one.
1: It, it is good. and it, it really does add a new dynamic to Urusei Yatsara and to actually Mendo's character.
0: As well, mm-hmm. because Mendo, as
1: you know, like Mendo's always been second banana, as I stated earlier, and this kind of gives him more of a, a central role and more of a motivation because he's kind of realizing, like, no matter what he does, he's not going to get with Lum.
2: Mm.
1: Like as much yeah. as he likes her, it's his his motivation kind of changes and shifts a little bit towards the end of the um of the manga. So look, it is interesting, and we will go into the second half of this this chapter next time, we keep saying, we're going to keep up with the manga. And then like manga keeps coming out and we were able to do like half of the manga each time.
0: (laughs) Well, we're not too far behind now. So hopefully we will be able to catch up before 13. And um, new episodes have been coming out on the feed regularly, so hoping that will continue up through <laughs> the next uh, months. And, yeah, like, I think we'll yep. get back on a regular schedule. with um,
2: Yeah.
1: The next episode to come out is going to be the Only You episode, which I am particularly proud of. I think um, we had a, a lot to say about that one. So if you're listening to this and haven't listened to the Only You first uh, Lum Squad special, I'm gonna call it a special because it it was it was a good episode. I suggest that you go back and listen to that because it is it is a fantastic episode.
0: Absolutely. It should be out by the time you're listening to this episode. If not, it is already out on the Patreon. So I think it you, is
1: out on the Patreon, yeah. It right is. Now, so, so
0: if you want to check it out early and it's not out publicly yet, definitely check that out. And heck, if you want to check out any uh, Lump Squad episodes early, they usually go up on the Patreon, if not just a little bit early, but a lot early than the public release date. <laughs> so definitely look forward to them uh, on there if you want, like, early access and listen to them first.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Patreon is a good idea. Um, Let's read the copy. Yeah. Uh, I am Andrew Yoshimura, mostly known as AC. I'm at ProdTally on Twitter. I have been tweeting out a lot of Urusei Yatsura manga-related material at the moment. I really can't wait to get into the next manga, because they use the onomatopoeia yoink. (laughs) As a Simpsons fan, I just can't wait to get into that. Just as a <laughs> sidebar, I'm just saying, I just think it's fascinating. But it is. Um, we've got lots more great content to come. You can uh, also listen to my other podcast, which is Game Life Balance Australia, where episodes are intermittent at best. I suppose <laughs> this is, honestly speaking, right now. Lum Squad is like my more popular and um and my more focused podcast at the moment and i'm quite proud of that but um you know we, i still have like a hundred episodes of back catalogs for game life balance australia if you want to check that out
0: uh, how about you oh absolutely if you want to check me out you can check uh, me out on twitter Adam i'm anywhere everywhere by that name Annie list letterbox animation revelation of Loma that's where you can find me and if you want to check out the other podcasts I do, I do Manga Mavericks, a podcast dedicated to discussing manga as both a medium and as an industry. And we do a lot of series retrospectives, a lot of new coverage of new series, and recaps of the latest ongoing news in the manga industry. And it's a really fun time. So if you want to check that out, you can find that on Twitter at Manga and the podcast is on every podcast platform you can think of apple Podcasts, profile stitcher and the like and we're also on youtube youtube leslie said long mavericks so yeah you can check us out on there and if you want to follow my art uh, if you like the art i do for my podcast and the animation illustrations i make in journal, you can follow
2: which i do me on
0: instagram oh thank you so much uh, you can follow me on instagram at setartworks and as for Lum Squad, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at Lum underscore squad, or on Tumblr at dot com. you can email us at LumsquadPod at gmail.com as well if you want to send us comments, suggestions, feedbacks, your thoughts on this volume of yours, your series, Your thoughts on upcoming volumes and the series. We'd love to catch you guys feedback back and talk about them on the show. And it's on pretty much every podcast platform you can think of: Apple's podcast, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, and the like. You know, anywhere you can think of. And it would really be awesome if you'd like give us a rating, a review. It helps us kind of be more prominent in algorithms and reach more fellow lump Store troopers and hearts and minds. More people <laughs> who'd be interested in listening to the show. So that'd be awesome if you guys could. Uh, leave us a rating and review, and it'd be also be cool if you'd be so kind if uh, you know you would support us over on our Patreon, Patreon.com/MiningRavens, where that you know kind of helps us fund all uh, our podcast projects reduced through the network, and helps us pay for like you know the website. Uh, kind of a recent development is that we have Become the website. We used to be hosted on alls.com, but now we are all.com. The <laughs> site has effectively been rebranded to mangaarts.com. So, you know, we it's really exciting to become the website, but now also that's kind of responsibilities, yeah. including <laughs> website costs. So, you know, the support you can give us over on Patreon it really helps us out, helps us pay for that, and podcasts. Hosting costs and stuff like that. And we have a lot of great rewards so if you do uh, support us on Patreon. Like we mentioned before, we have like an early access tier for early access to our podcasts, including episodes of Lum Squad, quite a bit in advance. And that's at our $2 level. And we have exclusive podcasts at our $5 level. We have monthly, exclusive bonus podcasts uh, on our Patreon covering a variety of different topics. One of the most recent series we did was one where my co-host on Manga Colton went through the entirety of Saint Seiya, Red it for the first time, two volumes, an episode. So that was a really fun series. Hearing.
1: I'm just going to say, else. better him than me.
0: <laughs> Not a fan. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that was a fun series <laughs> to listen to, and uh, they have more, like, um, read-through plans in the works. And we have other uh, podcast bonus... Plans in the works. Like, we are doing a great series with our friend Maxi Bernard profiling Japanese manga magazines. We did an episode on Shonen manga magazines earlier, and now we have one upcoming with Shoujo magazines. And of course, we have our yearly, end of the year retrospective on the latest Shonen Jump series in the past year, how they did. Of what we think of them, so that's going to come out at the end of December, that's going to be one to look forward to as well, because there have been a lot of big stuff happening in all the Shonen Jump series that uh, we're going to be excited to talk about. And yeah, so we have a lot of cool rewards, bonus pockets for you guys at our Patreon, and again, like any bit of support really helps us out and helps us keep the shows going. But that about does it for this episode of Lum Squad. And we will see you guys in the next one for the second half of our coverage of Volume Eleven. Bye bye.
2: Bye.